Welcome to the Desert Sun Podcast with me, your host, Tim Newman. I'm also the author of the blog, White Sun of the Desert, which can be found at www.desertsun.co.uk. Thank you for joining me. So, I have with me my first guest ever for this podcast on podcast number three. His name is Mike and he has come from, well, let him tell you. Uh, Switzerland. Where in Switzerland? Uh, In the Bernese Oberland. Deepest, darkest Switzerland. So that's about a three-hour drive from where I am here, just over the French border. And Mike has come to tell us a little bit about his experience working in Switzerland when a big company decided to take his over. So I'll leave you to it. Okay, so uh, background is basically, um, let's just say, a specialist legal services company. Small company, typically had about three sort of frontline employees and a... And a, and a similar number of back office employees. Um, it was set up as a small firm and it uh, partnered with a uh, big European group who will remain anonymous to protect the guilty and so that I don't get sued. Anyway, um, initially when this, when, when this partnership started, it was generally positive. Um, they helped us with sort of shared services, with uh, IT support that was centralised, that was... Uh, that worked quite well. They improved some of the back office processes, modernised it. That that was all really rather good. Um, there are a few early mistakes. Um, this was a, this was a, a group looking to grow uh, into other markets, and they bought into the French market progressively, and uh, and my firm in the Swiss market. Now the plan was that they take on more and more of the shares as they went along, uh, take more and more control. But that didn't really initially seem to be a problem. The first sort of Slight issue was that they uh, were hoping to get to buy another firm in and fuse and fuse them. Uh, they went a bit ahead of themselves and um, uh, rented office space sufficient for the fused company that then never happened. So that was a relatively minor situation. Effectively, they 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 thought they were better at negotiating than they were. The other company said, nah, screw you guys, we're going home. And these guys were all French. It was a French company, but were the individuals French? Or it, was was a, they... it was a... Uh... Oh, no, they're Belgian, sorry. Yeah, it was a Belgian company trying to who were dominant on their market in Belgium and were trying to expand and become a, a more Europe-wide group. And the people they sent over to Switzerland, they were Belgians? Uh, yeah, the management team. There were never any permanent postings to us we were only small but when people came down they were always uh, and were they parties. Flemish or Walloons mixture oh okay right. so uh, you can get into some interesting uh, Belgian language politics here so um, the 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 general management language was English as oh, a result okay. as their way around their kind of toxic uh, language politics in Belgium right okay so they turned up in in Switzerland and what was their what was their overall approach did they did they approach you with a, an attitude of, well, we don't know anything about this place and we've bought you for these reasons. Obviously, there were benefits to them buying you. Did they respect that you could provide those benefits or did they do what I suspect you're going to tell us? They came in and decided that actually they know better anyway and this is how it should be done. Ultimately, yes, but not initially. Okay. Um, I mean, initially, initially they, they wanted growth. They wanted to see growth. 
usual thing. And there were mon- there was money behind the Belgians, uh, investor outside investor money behind the Belgians. Uh, that sort of thing's a bit of a giveaway when you get sort of statements we want fifteen percent growth. Oh yeah, because twenty percent is unrealistic and ten percent is uh, not enough for the outside investor. So it's this compromise it's okay. that sets off alarm bells. Um, but it, but that came that came a bit later. Um, Initially, they, they they got these excessively large offices and uh, they recruited uh, to try and fill them. And it sort of went on like that for a while until there was a change in CEO. In Belgium? Yeah, okay. at, group, at group level. Right. Um, who was a centralist. And there's a, there's, ah. a, there's a Dilbert, series of Dilbert cartoons where the boss says, the new thing is centralization. And two years later, the new thing is decentralization and autonomy. It was sort of... A bit like a bit like that, and that's sort of when the 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 rot started to set in. Essentially, um, there were unrealistic expectations of growth. We weren't dominant on our on our little part of the of the Swiss market. We were the number twos by right. a long way. Um, but they they seem to have difficulty projecting themselves into a different situation because they they were dominant where they were, and they had this idea that that the bottleneck in turnover was the number of people to treat the work. Right. And what is the bottleneck? With us, it was the amount of work. Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> we had a certain amount of work. Um, we didn't get an awful lot of walk-in work because the, the, our local competitors got that. They had a good web presence. They had a good local presence. Right. Uh, they had a lot of exposure in the press. Um, people would, would sometimes say, oh, are you? Oh, so you're like a department of these guys. I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> no. So they were working on the basis that the number of number of people to do the work multiplied by x hours per year equals number of build hours right. multiplied by hourly rate equals turnover on that type of work. Okay. Only if you've only got work for about three people, yeah, and no, you've got it six, work. it doesn't work. So that's, that's sort of when things start to get a little trickier. Um, so like, so why why aren't your figures following what we what what our planning? It's the problem of central planning. Yeah, usually that they started from a false precept and they're planning on the basis of the of of, of their, their lever on which they pull. Their only lever on which they pull is number of people, and in their calculation, because on their market it worked like that, they had an effectively quasi infinite pool of work that they potential work that they could draw on. They had big clients looking to supply them with even more work and, and the bottleneck was how many people they had to treat it so they were effectively turning down work because of that and they sort of seemed to think that that would be the same everywhere and it really really wasn't I mean we were dealing with much smaller accounts um, who didn't have that kind of that kind of uh, potential for work there and they also thought that because they were dominant on their market they could rock up on our market and say hey we're Group H. Um, yeah, come, you're, you want to work with us. That they could, it, we used to joke, uh, semi-seriously, that, uh, that, that their idea was they could rock up in a new firm and say, hey, we're, we're Group H. You really want to work with us, don't you? And then they'd... Uh, oh, okay. So it wasn't so much a, a, cultural, uh, a cultural difference. It was really just a, a, a business culture difference rather than national culture difference. To a large degree, it came... It, the, it came down to that. There was a slight cultural difference as well because the Swiss are Swiss. Yeah. They're not generally pro-EU. And 
when we were approaching potential customers, we'd have to gauge their reaction to the idea of working with what was effectively a European multinational. Oh, uh, yeah. And then gauge our responses or direct our responses uh, according to, to their response. I mean, effectively, it was either neutral or, neg- or negative. And your competitor was Swiss, your main competitor. 100%. Oh, okay, right. Because I know from what I've learned in my brief time in Switzerland there, they prefer working with other Swiss. Mm. What's interesting is that the, it, it, it's, they prefer working with Swiss firm. They don't mind that practically everybody oh, sure. working for the firm is, is foreign. It's that the firm is Swiss. And that you're there. I think and they like you being there. there. They like you physically being there. That's common with a lot of nationalities. I mean, when I was in, I might have said this recently on the blog, but when I was working in Kuwait, I initially worked there from Dubai. I was living in Dubai. Mm. And they had no problem with me being British. But the first question is, are you based in Kuwait? Yeah. And if you were based in Dubai, it was, well, they saw it as a lack of commitment. There was probably also a bit of ego being dented because Dubai is the good place to live and Kuwait was shit. But they wanted you to be there. They yeah. thought a committed contractor would be on location where the work is. So I think that's true for a lot of places. Uh, yeah, and the Swiss seem to be like that. Yeah. They don't care who you are, provided you're committed to being there. They have slight scepticism to people who live in France and work in Switzerland. Oh, is that right? Are you, a little. <laughs> I hear this now. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's, it, it's, it's, my, it's, it's minor compared. It's, part, it's, it's partly being present and being physically present and, and available. But presumably that's stronger the more east you go into Switzerland. Because in Geneva, I think it's quite, quite common. It's normal. But it, yeah, in Geneva, it's quite, it's quite normal simply because Geneva and La Côte... The whole commuter belt that's actually inside Switzerland is just mind-blowingly expensive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and well, I've heard even even in the very close villages and towns, the ones that are literally just over the border in France are very expensive now. Yeah, you know, and there's uh, I've seen the traffic because I I have my lectures in the evenings. I drive from Annecy to Geneva. And I see the traffic trying to get out of Switzerland at 6 p.m. Oh, insane. It's insane. And I'm going on a completely empty road the other, the other way. Yeah. So if ever I'm working there in the day, I'm going to have to be mindful of that. But I, I have heard, yeah, that, I mean, Annecy's actually quite far away, but there's a lot of small towns and villages just over the border in France, which are almost dominated by frontaliers who work, yeah. in, work in Geneva. When I was looking for a job in Switzerland initially, um, I had a sort of anywhere but Geneva policy right. because uh, my view was that I wasn't going to uh, move to Switzerland to live in France. Yeah, there's also the problem. Geneva, I found, is a bit of an odd city as well. It's a kind of, uh, because of so many international bodies there, it's a very international city. It's far more franc- a franc- a francophile, francified mm-hmm. than perhaps other cities. And Geneva, the it's, thing is, it's a very small city as well, I'd realised. Oh, in Swiss terms, it's huge. In Swiss terms, <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's huge anyone who's never been to Geneva Geneva's small I mean it's not a big city at all but it has a hell of a lot in it it's a lot of wealth in it there's mm-hmm. a lot of you know the international bodies are there there's a lot of uh, HQs there's a lot of you know, hell of a lot of banks but it's not geographically a big city it's pretty small and it's uh, oh God, I forget what I was going to say now Anyway, carry on. Anyway, let's, uh, let's take a little tangent at this stage, because at about the point we're at in the, uh, in the, in the Swiss saga, uh, Group H uh, decided that they would uh, expand their French activities. They were very much on an expansion uh, 
role, which I think was possibly because they had outside investors uh, in there. Um, and there's this big Paris firm that had been for sale for quite a while, and uh, none of the big Paris, other Paris firms would touch it with a barge pole. Effectively, it was quite large. It had a pretty good turnover, but its margins were negative. It was losing money hands over fist. Did it have 100,000 employees they couldn't get rid of? Not 100,000 employees, but... Uh, I mean, for the for the sector, it was it was a fairly large player, and they had a they had a lot of a lot of work, but it was still largely on paper. Yeah. It was still very very overhead, massively overhead heavy, old school. Uh, things had to be signed off at a very very high level. Whereas with what I was doing, I I could sign stuff off as a someone at the coalface up, up right. there. It was the it was the, the CEO who uh, who had to sign things off. Um, but they thought, there's another case of hubris, that, oh, it's good, we'll go in there, we'll modernise them, and it'll be fine, said someone who had clearly never dealt with a French company. <laughs> um, the, uh, what was the proper term? The Comité de Personnel? Oh, yeah, there's the Comité, comité d'Entreprise. Yeah. No, that's the one that dishes out cinema tickets and food vouchers and things. Yeah, the, yeah, they've got all kinds of syndicates and yeah, Basically, the, the, the personnel, the, the employee representation... Um, it was it, it was a bit like Little Britain. It was committee says no. <laughs> so we want to do this. We want to make this better. Committee says no. Um, okay, your overheads are too high. We're losing money. We need to do something. You, we've got potential here. We just need to sort of sort this stuff out here. Committee says no. And just constantly. So they, they've gone on with this hubris of we're great. We are ah, this cultural difference uh, in France. Uh, it's just uh, it's just silly. We're, 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 we're Group H. We can uh, we can plough through this. So the Belgians didn't appreciate the French culture. That surprises me a bit. Um, then on the other hand, it doesn't because I heard when Total merged with Elf, there was quite a lot of animosity because Total was seen as the posh boys up in Paris and there's, they were a lot smaller. And Elf were seen as the farmers down in Po. <laughs> um, and the reason that, ta- go off on a tangent again, the reason Total, which was much smaller, bought Elf, because Elf was in the middle of some massive corruption bribery scandal that had the CEO chucked in jail and his mistress indicted. It was, t- it was typical European corporate corruption. And, and to save the whole thing, the much smaller Total was basically told to buy out the much bigger Elf. But I heard that the real problems came when Total bought Fina, which was a Belgian refining company. For a while, it was called Total Fina Elf. And then, as they normally do, they got rid of the appendix and just went back to being called Total. But I heard, and this surprised me, because I met a few Belgians who worked for Fina. And they said that was really difficult, that merger, Mm -hmm. because of the huge cultural differences between France and Belgium. Now, to somebody who's from the UK, you're you're barely aware that Belgium's a separate country to France. You just assume that it's it's, it's just Belgians are basically French until you get to the Dutch border, and then they well, they're they're all they're all foreign. They speak French, and those that don't speak French speak Dutch. So it's what's uh... exactly so. So that surprised me that your Belgian company H obviously didn't understand their near neighbours very well. Not at all. I mean, the, 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 previous mer- the previous mergers that they'd done in France, they were small firms putting them together. That was 
that that went relatively easily, not necessarily in respect of the old owners. I mean, I think one thing I've learned from this whole episode is that if you go into partnership with a big uh, big company, you need to have an exit your your own personal exit strategy if you're an owner or partner. Sure. Um, because the num the number of occasions I've heard of a small company being subsumed by a big one and then the relationship with the previous owner, previous partners staying good long term is exactly zero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it, all, that's always the case, yeah. I think you you've you've got to appreciate that on a sort of three to five year timeline, you're you're gonna have a way out and sort of build that in into mm-hmm. the into the package you negotiate at the at the time. Uh, but there weren't any there wasn't any major sort of industrial strife there, largely because they were smaller companies, so they didn't have these structures and these committees that had to yeah. be consulted and everything and it sort of doesn't shock me because i've had enough experience of people in in french companies the, the short-termism of the um the the, the comité de personnel or whatever it was um they didn't care as long as as long as they were being paid in for the next couple of months so they didn't short, care yeah, yeah they didn't care it's a very very short time horizon it's a sort of manana domani but, time horizon but i found the general attitude towards companies in France, certainly in the minds of the French public, is that companies exist to provide employment. The idea that they should return value to the shareholders seems to be... I don't think they're even aware of it. It's that the purpose of it is to keep people employed. That is the purpose of a company. And the owners, the owners' expectations of financial returns are completely irrelevant to the greater goal of just keeping people employed. Yeah, and it, it seemed that the the committee didn't really care about continued employment long term. It was a, a very, very short time horizon on it. As long as for the minute, I'm all right, Jack. It's not our problem. I mean, why, why are you coming to us with your financial problems? This isn't our problem. I don't have a financial problem. You're, pay, you're paying me at the end of each month. So I don't have a financial problem. You have a financial problem. And there's possibly a lack of sort of a holistic view of, of the sort of, of, of the whole nature of, and it goes into the theory of the firm and, and what it is, um, a view of, of the fact that it's in the interest of the employees that the firm is making money because ultimately money is not infinite. Well, and, and of their, the, the generation that comes after them. I mean, what always surprised me about the French is, okay, I can understand on one level that if you're a few years off retirement, who cares, keep mm. paying me, but yeah. they're, they're children don't have work and they don't have an economy or an industry to go into because their own generations completely screwed it up yeah and that surprises me a bit but I've got a I've got a theory about why the French employees behave like that and it comes down to the way that the French companies are managed if you have a situation okay let's step back a bit when when the British were in India they would employ Indians to work for them. Who could get to a certain level within the authority or the organisation or the institution, whatever it was, but they would never ever be the same as a British person working there. Yeah. And there was always this complete divide between the white British who went over there and everybody else, no matter how good you were as a local you would never actually achieve that status. Now, from what I've seen from French companies, they recruit from the polytechnics and the grand écoles, and their management act like the British would do in India. And anybody who isn't from that caste can try to work their way up, but they're really seen as complete outsiders. They will never be part of it. 
And the French management do whatever the hell they like without any consideration or consultation with anybody who isn't in that group, just in the same way as the British made decisions in India without consulting with their best Indians. They just didn't. It just they weren't to be consulted with. So I think the French basically worked out, well, if you're going to behave like this, then we're just going to behave in our for our own interests as well and just join ranks and say, well, you know, fuck you. If you're going to be the guys up there dictating what's going to happen, regardless of the outcomes and taking no responsibility, we're going to do what's in our best interest. So you've ended up with this huge division between the management and the workers, which you possibly don't see in Germany, for example. Yeah. So... You- it's a sort of very different conception of the firm to to in Switzerland, where where generally it's understood. I mean, there's, there's no, I mean, union bolshiness bol- in uh, in Switzerland just isn't such a great thing. And there's there's differences the way employment law works that play into this as well. But it seems it, it seems to be generally seen as a much more cooperative endeavour. Yes. And what you're doing is to serve the the customer, whereas in France, as you say, it's it's uh, to provide employment, which is also a very Soviet view. Of yep. the purpose of work. Yep. What is the what is the purpose of work? And in the in the in the in the Soviet view, the purpose of work was to provide employment. Um, and then you end up with these competing interest groups, which yeah. is kind of Marxian in a way. It's a very class based thing exactly. in, in, in the very non classist French, supposedly well, non classist egalitarian French, yeah. French society. But in in France, you very much got the fonctionnaires. As a, as a cast apart and then the upper management as a cast apart and, exactly. the, and, and the people at the coalface exactly. as a cast apart and they're sort of pulling in three different directions in this sort of unhappy equilibrium uh, which isn't really an equilibrium I mean uh, driving in today there's, there's strikes and, and protests uh, meant I got through the uh, the payage for free that's right the yellow vest yeah the yellow vests today um, but this happens on a, on, a, on a company level as well. But I think I, I've actually, although, I mean, I don't want to come across all socialist and Marxist here, but I do think a large part of union um, bolshiness and militant unions is down to bad management. Oh, absolutely. It's, and I think that was part of the problem the British had with it. The reasons the British had bad, bad unions was that the British management was terrible. Oh, British middle management is horrific. Exactly. So whereas you look at com- countries like Switzerland and maybe Germany, where there's a lot more kind of discussion and cooperation between the management and the workers. Now, I know that the management in Germany have deliberately kept the wages down so they can export, because that's something Tim Wurstel yeah. goes on about, leaving that aside. It seems to be a lot more cooperative, whereas in France, it was always the British coming into India, right, we're in charge, this is what we look like, you can try all you want, and we might even throw you a few nice positions, but you will never be one of us. And of course, there's a, an unbridgeable gap. Whereas yeah. it seems in Switzerland, it's a lot more, you know, the management, a bit more similar to the, to the workers, so they, they cooperate more. I, I think the big difference is, and this is a massive tangent from talking about Firm H, but I, I think it's interesting. So yeah, well, this is the way, this is the, way the podcasts go. Yeah, so, so. Um, I mean, effect, effectively, in Germany and also in Switzerland, although they don't use the same term, you've got the Mittelstand. The economy is dominated by small and medium enterprises. Yes. Neither Germany nor Switzerland went through a massive spate of nationalising everything in sight post World War Two. Right. That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. If you think of the proportion of the British economy that was nationalised post war, and as soon as you've got that sort of structure in place, you've got the jobs worth management attitude. You've got dead men's shoes. Um, you've got it's Muggins's job. 
well, Muggins is becoming general manager when uh, the other the other guy leaves because it's effectively it's his turn. It's, yes, it's on yeah, seniority. Yeah. And then there's this this part of the British psyche that I dislike, which is that I I am in charge, therefore I know what I'm doing. It's, oh yeah, it's, yeah. It's yeah. completely back backwards, and I've seen this not only um, on on company levels, but I've seen it in clubs as well. Someone who doesn't right. know what they're doing. Well, university sports clubs, because you've got a constant turnus of uh, of people going through and coming out, and people do a year or two years running the club. A guy by by sheer force of no one else was there ends up running it. Uh, doesn't know what he's doing. Somebody younger who does know what he's doing because he's linked in with in, within the the structures of the sport comes in and says, "Well, we, actually, we can do this. We can do this." But it's like, no, I'm in charge. Okay. I know what I'm doing because uh, because I'm in charge. It's it's kind of uh, cart before the horse kind of thing and I, and I think a lot of British management culture comes from the nationalised era where it's I'm in charge therefore I know what I'm doing see that's interesting because I've worked I've worked with Anglo-Saxon companies and I always thought that was far le- what you're describing was far less British and far more European like I found the French extremely hierarchical they're almost mm. Asian in their hierarchy whoever is the boss sat at the head of the table is always right, and what you don't, what I found in a French company, you don't have is subject matter experts. When yeah. I was with English companies or Shell, which was sort of Anglo-Dutch, you'd have a subject matter expert. So if you're talking about the subsea valve system as part of a bigger meeting, mm-hmm. the piping engineer in charge of that subsea valve system, he would be the authority on it. Everybody would listen to him, and if he said we need to do this. Everybody, including the manager, would would listen and defer to his knowledge. Whereas in France, oh no, it doesn't matter. You've got 30 people sat around the table, but the boss is the one who really knows everything because culturally he cannot admit that he doesn't. Do you see that in Britain as well? Because honestly, I haven't. Now, it might exist. I I don't know. I've sort of seen this from the outside because I I emigrated at the first opportunity. (laughs) Like me, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Straight after university, a couple of months later, I got a job in foreign and was gone. Um, But sort of discussing with people who've worked in big British firms who often take over, particularly reprivatized firms later right um the, there's this there's this culture of the the boss is competent because he's the boss yeah 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 okay um, i certainly i haven't seen it in in switzerland and and certainly in, in in smes you don't have the luxury of that kind of management attitude because companies like that fail typically yeah. quite quickly because there's just not the overhead that can absorb that kind of crapness no exactly and it's it's something that i've i've Talk to a bit. In fact, I'll probably do a podcast with him before too long. The guy who writes the blog, uh, Ockham, William of Ockham, he, he, he writes a blog and comments on my blog quite a lot. He's a, he's a, he's a mate of mine that I, I know reasonably well. I've met him a couple of times. But he, he talks quite a lot about, although in a different context, he talks about hubris. Yeah. And he was talking about how when the English cricket team got thumped in Australia, they arrived with all this hubris, just thinking that they're, by virtue of who they were, they were going to win. And Sounds they got like hammered. company age. Exactly. And, and when we, he talked about that and put it on his old blog, I, I started looking around the company I was working for thinking hubris is probably the one thing which does more damage that I could see than anything else. The, the lack of humility in a manager or an individual to sit in front of somebody and think, you know, this guy knows something, I know something, let's have a discussion 
and see where we both end up. It's immediately, where am I in the hierarchy? Who has the more power? This is the view that will prevail. And it's, I don't know if that happens in, in Switzerland. I'm hoping not, because if this is where I want to work, so... It certainly, in general, it's a good working environment. And I haven't, I haven't seen that. But then big, uh, I, I've not I'm seen... Sure it's a Nestle. Big, yeah, Nestle. <laughs> now, that's, this, this, now we've got a perfect segue back to Company H. Okay. Now, um, certainly in, uh, in France, a lot of legal services are outsourced. Yes. You don't want to employ anybody that you don't have to employ internally. Um, So the sort of specific legal services that Company H is providing is very rarely done in-house. You've got in-house coordinators and then it's outsourced. Yeah. We were told to go and try and get Nestle as a client. They have their own people. It's all in-house. Yeah. Because it's all in-house in Switzerland. Same, same as the giant pharmaceuticals as well. Yeah. They'll oh, have their yes, own we people. were supposed to go and get the giant pharmaceuticals as oh, well. Oh, yeah. No, they'll have their own people in-house. All in-house. Yeah, yeah. All in-house. All that you would get is some scraps of outsourcing of their surplus. And the scraps of outsourcing is not interesting. And it's a pain to deal with. And then you end up in, uh, I've seen it, you, you can sometimes end up in a nasty internal political battle if the people internally fear that that they might be outsourced because in Switzerland you can hire and fire. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's no no work protection here at all, is there? Well, there's well, very little compared to France. Compared to France. Yeah. I mean, there is, there is worker protection, um, but the, 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 the risk to the employer maximum is six months' salary plus legal costs. Yeah, which is nothing, which is effectively... France, is, that's effectively firing people on the spot, yeah. Yeah, so you can do the most appallingly illegal firing and the most it's going to cost you is six months plus costs. Yeah, yeah. No, I've heard that. And because and, I was on a Swiss contract. I was on a Swiss contract when I worked all those years in, well, in Paris and Nigeria. And uh, the reason we were there was because of the favourable laws. If they'd employed us through France, I'd probably be sat there with my feet on a desk writing about polyamory and carrier bags. <laughs> and, uh, well, I was doing that anyway. Um, yeah, for the, for the rest of my life. But I've... I've heard that, but that's why unemployment's low in Switzerland. It's why it's a very dynamic working environment. Despite a quarter of the population being immigrant. Yeah. um, Unemployment at the sort of height of the 2008 recession went up to something like 3.1, 3.2%, which was like questions being asked in Parliament. Yeah. Um, It was crazy. But the number of times we said to Company H, there is no point in even looking at Nestle and so on because it's all insourced. And there's nothing you can do to change that. And they just wouldn't listen. They wouldn't understand. Oh, no, but we turn up and say you're us. I'm like, they we, won't even know who you they are. Won't, they, yeah. they don't know who you are. Because Switzerland, Switzerland's very... I mean, they do a lot of exporting and they throw a lot of weight around internationally, but they're a very inward-looking country. I mean, they're, they're, uh, they're kind of insular. They like things local. They, they, I can't much. imagine a lot of the Swiss know what's going on outside their borders, nor do they want to. I was saying, little tangents. Um, is that the Francophone Swiss take a great interest in French politics in the way that the Brits take an unhealthy attitude in American politics. No, the Brits are worse. Um, Is that right? Is it? Okay. They take an interest. Uh, The German-speaking Swiss, being the largest uh, linguistic group in Switzerland, um, don't take that much interest in German politics. They don't really take much more interest in it than uh, than the Brits do, for instance. Is that maybe because German politics is so less centralised than French politics? Do you think? I mean, who would the, who would the, who would the Swiss follow? I mean, uh... um, possibly, but I think it's I think it's a certain degree of uh, cultural confidence. 
So is is the okay? You'll know this because you speak Swiss German and mm-hmm. you speak French. Mm-hmm. Okay, I speak a version of French and no Swiss German at all or any kind of German. So is I know that Swiss German is very different from the German they speak in Germany. Yeah. Is the Swiss French much different from the French they speak in France? No. Because they say nonant, I've noticed that rather than quatre-vingt-dix. Yeah. And but other than that, it's pretty similar. It's pretty similar. There's some words for things. It's uh, it's a bit like, in fact, it's probably not even quite as marked as the difference between. Uh, proper English and American English. Okay. There's all different words for things, and the Swiss will generally know the French word for things because of importing TV. Yeah, yeah just like the, yeah, just yeah. like the way the Brits know American words for things, and exactly. not necessarily vice versa. Yeah. Um. But the funny thing is, I, I was in a uh, a supermarket just over the border near Chamonix, the little oh, yeah. uh, the little village between Chamonix and the border, and I needed uh, kitchen paper. Right. Which in Swiss French is totally descriptive. It's papier ménage, right. household paper. Yeah. So I walk in and I can't find it. So I ask the person uh, where the uh, where the household paper is. Quoi? <laughs> and what is it in French? Uh, what is it in French? I wouldn't know in French. Uh, French. Le sopalin. Oh goodness me! No, I. Def- it's like it's like going into a British supermarket and asking for the sticky tape, and being wrong. What mate? Yeah. Uh, sticky tape. Yeah. What mate? Uh, seller tape. Oh yeah, it's over there. Aisle six. That's. Uh, so maybe that's why. I mean, I, 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 maybe, maybe. Well, I don't know. Maybe you can tell me that the, the Swiss French are closer to French than the Swiss Germans are to Germans. Yeah, dialect. Swiss Swiss German dialect is a big deal. Because I, one of my colleagues on my MBA is uh, is Austrian, but she's mm-hmm. Tyrolean. She's from Innsbruck. Yeah. So she's German speaker, and she very much feels she's in a foreign country, even in the. German part yeah. of Switzerland. Austria is nothing at all like Switzerland from where her perspective. Yeah. Whereas, in fact, she went to Geneva because she wanted to, she did an internship in Vienna, which she didn't like very much, and she wanted to sort of go abroad and sort of <laughs> go and you know, think get some international experience. So she's gone from Innsbruck to Geneva, which I had a bit of a giggle at that. But for me, I can't see... In terms of culture, yes. In terms of the way they do things, in terms of language and general sort of way of walking along the street, there's not a huge difference between France and Switzerland, really. I mean, it's you're, you're looking at this as from an out, an outside perspective. Exactly. What's exactly. In, what's interesting is that the in my particular branch of legal services, because we have to hire abroad a lot. Um, in the, on, in the Francophone part of Switzerland, we end up hiring from France. And in the German-speaking side of Switzerland, we end up hiring from Germany. Um, and a lot of the cultural prejudices of the, of the, the bigger country, the French, they, they, they sort of think of Switzerland as kind of parochial and yeah. small and provincial. Um, and you get people... I mean, the company I worked at, they'd, before I arrived, they typically have a turnover of a, of a French person every sort of six to 18 months, either the partner wouldn't like it, it would be too small, it'd be too quiet. Um, they, they, they sort of have this view, and I, and I sort of try and project this into the, the Anglo experience. It's like people, Americans having an idea of Britain and coming over and finding it's not quite like their sort of stereotype idea yeah, yeah, or, or, yeah. or vice versa. Um, and sometimes the, the, the clash with the, the French preconception of Switzerland as some sort of rogue province of French people who happen to be Swiss and then they, they get there and they discover that, no, the Swiss French are Swiss. 
who speak oh, French. Oh, okay, right, okay. They're not French people who happen to live in Switzerland. Ah, right, that's interesting. And yeah, that's interesting. Because I wouldn't, I wouldn't have particularly spotted that. Yeah. It's something that you, you, you've, you've got to see it from the inside. Yes. And that they like... They they like to joke and bitch and moan about the yeah. over the Rösti Graben, which is the the linguistic dividing line, which is uh, that's a term that came from the First World War actually. Okay, the First World War nearly split Switzerland. It was kind of right crazy. Um, um, but actually, when it comes down to it, they're Swiss. There's there's more in common. They've got more in common culturally with the Swiss Germans and they have it in, in common with the French despite the language but then but then the French is uh yeah we're getting into what the who the French are because having lived in France I know that the term typically French does have some applications but it's also in many ways nonsense like right now we're sitting in Haute Savoie I think I said that right we're in Annecy we're so we're 20 minutes from the Swiss border it's very much a Swiss feel and when, yeah. I, when I bought my apartment, the guy I bought it from, he was a guy a few years younger than me, so probably the same age as you. And he wasn't, he didn't tell me where he was from, but he wasn't from here. And he said what he liked about Annecy, he said it was very Swiss. He said it had a real, it wasn't really French, he said. He said it was, they were far more organised, it was much more, they were more kind of... Uh, well, I don't know. More organised, everything worked a bit better. They were more. The one-way in system business. sucks, though. I got caught in oh, it. The one-way system. That's for the tourists. <laughs> that's just for the tourists. It's a very pretty town, Annecy. Anyone who wants to come over should. It's a very nice-looking town. Um, but it was interesting when they had the French election last year. The entire country was either red for was it red for Macron or blue for Le Pen? I can't remember. But which but anyway, it was either red or blue for Macron or Le Pen, except for this region, which was yellow for Fillon or Fillon. <laughs> and they didn't care that he paid off his Welsh wife or anything. He was a capitalist, he wouldn't raise taxes, he was gonna do what's good for business. Because they're so much like the Swiss here. And I imagine if you're an insider, you'd see big differences between the Swiss French and the Horts of Warriors, or whatever they're yeah. called here. But probably if you're an, a, someone from Brittany or the southwest of France or Paris, you'd probably see the French here as being indistinguishable from the Swiss French, oh, maybe. Probably. I mean, Horts of Warriors very. Not, I mean, Horts of Warriors getting annexed by the French in what was it, 1860 in highly suspicious circumstances. <laughs> um, I mean, Horts of Warriors could quite easily. It, have been a canton of Switzerland. Yes. Had it wanted to at various times. Well, I'm hoping history. it will. When France inevitably self-destructs <laughs> and it goes completely, you know, it turns into the, well, the Islamic games. Republic of France. I'm hoping that the Horts of Var will, will, something similar to Crimea being annexed by Russia, you know, Switzerland will send little green men into Annecy Airport, which is, which is a field with a windsock on. And suddenly we'll all become Swiss and we'll be protected by the, the Swiss army and the Nazi gold hidden in the vaults of the Swiss banks. So that, that was why I bought in Annecy. But, but actually, joking aside, it is very similar to Switzerland. That Hort Savoir flag is this kind of... Yeah. It's, it's the like white cross, cross. On, the, on the red background, just yeah. the cross is a little bit different. If you go into any of the restaurants here, because it is a tourist town, it's all the motifs of Heidi and the cowbells and the yodeling and the... It's very Alpine, the, yeah. Very Alpine. They really play on that. So it's, it's very, very similar culture. They make fondue. They make, yeah, it's all fondue here. It's raclette, fondue, tartiflette. All this, in fact, to be honest, Annecy feels much more like Switzerland. Annecy feels more like the British idea of Switzerland than Geneva does. 
I think you're probably right there. I mean, Gene- Geneva is very inter- very international, um, sees itself, promotes itself as very international, uh, and is probably, in my view, the least Swiss of the Swiss uh, the Swiss yeah. cities. Whereas Annecy feels Swiss, even though it isn't, because they're hamming it up for the tourists. Savoir libre. Yeah. <laughs> is that still a thing? I, I've got no idea. I mean, I've, I've spoken to a handful of my neighbours, and I do. It's much friendlier here than in France. In Paris, sorry, in, France, in Paris... <laughs> In Paris, I when I first moved into my apartment, I banged on the door of my neighbour. I think he almost called the police. He's like, what the hell are you doing? I said, I'm your neighbour. Yeah, hi, I'm here to say hello. Well, you don't do that round here. He Goodness probably, me. He probably thought you were wanted to buy drugs or something. He, 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 something like that. And, and they, to, be fun, to be fair, I invited them over. And each of them, out of pure politeness, invited me back. And to their horror, I accepted. <gasps> so I remember sitting with this one... They were a lovely couple with with a small kid. And there was nothing wrong with them. They were just so uncomfortable in their apartment, nibbling some little biscuits with me sat there, drinking a small glass of wine, making small talk. They weren't used to it. And the other neighbours, they had a big party, invited us. But here in Annecy... Hey, I know most. Oh, I know most. Don't know most of them, but I know a handful of them. They say hello to you. You know, they're always up talking to you about things. So I suppose the same as London and the rest of the UK. You know. Yeah, well, there's lots of people in close proximity, and um, I lived in the Netherlands for quite a while, and you get that. You were quite distant from your neighbours. You'd sort of introduce. You wouldn't go knock on their doors. In no, the way you would in the UK. You sort of learn to meet them on the doorstep by diffusion. Yeah. As it were. So in Switzerland, do they do neighbours talk to each other? Uh, yeah, to a greater degree than in Holland, but it's still the private sphere is is massively important to the, to, to the Swiss in general. Um, so you yeah. sort of don't go inviting yourself in. It's sort of it's sort of a step up from from the Dutch approach of just meeting by by diffusion. Are they worried you might find some Nazi gold hidden in their back room? <laughs> <laughs> Sigh. <laughs> so, a few stereotypes coming out here. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's uh but no, I mean in in uh in France they're very very private people. In fact, yeah. I found this that you can be very good friends with French people in the office, but you'll never go back to their home. Same in Switzerland. Ah, okay. Well, that that's Absolutely interesting. The same. You can be really close friends in certain contexts, but never get invited to their house. See, that's interesting because in Britain, of course, we have the halfway house, which is the pub. Mm -hmm. You might not be invited to a British person's home, but who the hell would want to go there? It's cold, there's no food, and the wife's there. So you get invited to the the public house, which is halfway between the two, and that's where you do the majority of your socialising. And that's the same in Switzerland, yeah. But do they have pubs in Switzerland? uh, In German-speaking Switzerland, it's the uh, Dorf Bates. Okay. The, the 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 local restaurant. It's more a sort of rest. It's it's different. It's not the same. The British pub is something that is very typically British. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, in France, you've got the estaminet. I never saw one of them. What's one of them? Well, it's the sort of little the cafe. Tabac or the... no, well, no. sometimes the, t- the, oh, the tabac cafe, are, are, okay. are an estaminet as well. The sort of little cafe. They probably don't serve food beyond a croque monsieur. Yeah, yeah, If yeah. they even serve one of them. The little pastis is a pati pastis, yeah. The little glasses or something. I never went in those places. They yeah, bit, they're kind of they're kind of local for local people. Yeah. <laughs> and and in, in Holland, you've got the same thing. Uh, it's, it's called a brown crepe, and crepe means crawl, literally as well. <laughs> so it's like, where did this word come from? Are people crawling home? I'm not sure. Um, 
so there, there is this thing, but it's not quite the magnificence of the of the, of, of the British pub, which is quite a. It's an institution it's an in its own right. But, it, but the British pub is a very good. I have, in fact, I only appreciated this when I left the UK and then moved back to Europe. That the public house is it, it's it's exactly what it is. Yeah. It's it's a house. It has a lounge and it has seats and it has you know comfortable seats. It has a many Labrador farting by the fire. Exactly. <laughs> And, and and it's it's that halfway point between your your out your public life and your home life, and I found that that was missing in in France, for example. When you work with people in a big office in Paris, there's nowhere really you can go for a drink after work, but it's not quite the same thing. Yeah. Whereas by contrast, in Russia, they don't have that either. That doesn't matter because within two minutes of meeting a Russian, you're back at their apartment. The babushka, who's 102 years old, you know, with a chest full of medals from the war, having murdered alone Nazis with her bare hand, she's there. Serving you transmission fluid. Yeah, serving you transmission fluid with a row of gold teeth. She makes room for you. You get a place on this sofa. The whole family comes out in their underwear because it's boiling hot. You have to take your shoes off so you're wearing a pair of pink slippers and walking around in them. And everyone starts getting hammered on, yeah, um, moonshine. And it's, it, it's great, but they, they have no problem with that. And I, I probably didn't appreciate that as much. Actually, no, it's a lie. I did really appreciate that when I lived in Russia because I knew it was good. But I really missed it when I moved to France because I met some great people in the office, some really nice guys, you know. Yeah. But you never really got to really get into their lives whereas in Russia you meet someone at a bus stop within five minutes you're home at their house and they're your brother for life because you've finished off this bottle of vodka and I miss that the real kind of spontaneous ah, come back to mine and there's yeah. no pretension there's no there's no kind of um, oh I can't possibly let you in because there's the kids toys all over the floor. oh exactly there's no, there's there's none of that and and a, and a good example actually which is similar thing when, when we're in Nigeria we lived in these big apartment blocks and there were French and British in there and occasionally a French guy would have a party British guy would have a party and it was interesting to see the difference between the kinds of parties yeah. now a French party you'd hear there was a big party going on in a French guy's house and you'd know the guy and you'd think hang on I haven't got an invitation why is that and you'd speak to him and say you're having a party oh yeah yeah, yeah I am um, um but but the thing is there's not much space mean not much space you live in the same apartment as i do and you can see he's worried he's going to upset the seating plan (laughs) so he can't have just random people showing up it needs to be organized and if you actually are invited you'll spend the first 20 minutes being introduced to everybody and air kissing and this kind of thing and it's all very formal a british party on the other hand i was a scottish guy i don't think he listens to this greg nelson he had a party it was wide open door anybody you might know or even didn't know is welcome but don't expect to get met at the door. Yep. You walk into the door. All right, there's the booze. Lunch, dinner is kind of a tube of Pringles. If he's really pushing the boat out, it's two different flavours mixed together mm. in a bowl. And you can invite who the hell you want. And everybody comes and everyone's welcome. And it's up to you to mingle. And they were the two ways of how I saw, you know, between French parties and English yeah. parties. So what are Swiss parties like? Uh, they're kind of on the French end. They're formal. They're rather more formal. They're invitation, uh, or they're they're held on neutral ground in the, for instance, in the in the Dorf Bites. Right. And, I mean, the the the, the Dorf Bites it has the same place as a British pub. It's just not set out the same way. There's table service. Oh, right. Okay. Awfully yeah, bourgeois yeah. compared to a pub. 
Um, no carpets. It's always hard floor, isn't it? Almost always hard floor. Um, and there's normally in, in a corner, there's what's known as the Stammtisch, which right. is a sort of the, a big round table with lots and lots of chairs around it that the, the locals sit at. And it's sort of kind of the, the social dynamic is, oh, can I sit at the Stammtisch or not? And that's so, a, that, so there's a pecking... Well, I suppose there's a pecking order in the pubs in oh, Britain yeah, who, as well. Who's allowed who's to leave at the bar? bar? Yeah, yeah. Who's got their favourite table? Yeah. Um, so can you smoke in these stamptishes? Uh, not, no. Um, but do they? Sometimes after after hours. But there's, I mean, just like in France, it's only it's only the Brits that, that, that have the absolutely 100% uh, no smoking rule that you can have smoke room, smoking rooms. In Switzerland, like you can in Holland, like you can yeah, in France, yeah, yeah. and as usual, it's the Brits that gold plated this into. Yeah, you can't yeah. even smoke if there's any form of roof over your head whatsoever. But I, I, I learned though the reason that the French didn't mind the smoking ban so much. They used to smoke outside anyway. I think they used to sit outside drinking and smoking anyway, mm. didn't they? They were they, they they had this habit of sitting outside, which the Brits didn't. You'd have been well. There's a beer garden for the three weeks in the summer where you can use it but... yeah, between downpours. <laughs> But I think I think the French. I asked someone this. I said, "How come you guys didn't riot about this?" And they said, "Well, we spent half the time outside anyway." So it was less so, of an imposition. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and, and they don't seem to mind standing outside or sitting outside smoking because they actually will take a table outside, yeah. even even in winter. They'll sit outside with a coat on, yeah, and drink a coffee outside on the street. That whole sitting outside in the table was something they did anyway. Well, they've got better weather. Well, yeah, they've got better weather, but they're kind of used to it, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that was a massive tangent. Yeah, okay, Should so go back to... Back com- to the plot. Com- yeah. Right, I'm, ju- I'm just, I'm just going to pause this, because I need to refill my drink. You've got okay. the bottle beside you. My drink's empty, and I'm, I'm getting thirsty, so okay. I'm just going to pause this. Okay, so the drinks are refilled, and we're back. So, right, back to Company H. Sorry about that tangent, about... I can't remember what we were talking about, but yeah. Culture and... Stuff. Stuff. Um, right, so the stage we, we were at, uh, we, we're getting ever closer integration. Ever heard of that before? Integration, yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the company at this point, well, it, it's made some mistakes. It's, uh, in France, it's uh, taken over an old company that uh, needed reform, but uh, what's reform? <laughs> it's a gap in the dictionary. Um, <laughs> In Switzerland, we're in offices that are just cavernous for the number of people. And plus, we've over-recruited. We've got uh, a couple of trainees. We've got uh, certainly far more people than there is work for, which is our fault and our problem. We're clearly doing something wrong. So it starts It starts to get a bit... The, the tone starts to go downhill a bit. And plus, the centralization, the uh, ever-closer union between the various sites... That's a trigger phrase, that is. Trigger phrase. I've just pulled a face for those of you who can't see. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, so so we start... The, the new CEO is coming in and uh, it's starting to say, okay, uh, we're, a, we're a unified, unitary firm. We're not, uh, we're not Switzerland, France and Belgium. We are, we are, we are one firm. Um, and then we get into a massive management issue. This is starting to get into things not to do in management, volume one. Say one thing, do the opposite. Oof. So we've got this sort of one firm philosophy going on here. Um, and yet, okay, we, we have more capacity than we have work to treat. So they, they have the system of in, internal subcontracting. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but it's one firm. So that means that we can bill the client directly. Oh, no, 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 no. 
Oh, no, 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 oh, no, 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 no. That has oh, to go through no, us. No. That has yeah. to go through the business unit, which has the direct contact with the client. We can't, no, you can't, you can't enter into direct contact uh. with the client. Um, oh, okay. So um, we bill you at the preferential internal billing rate then, because you've obviously told us that we can't bill our normal rate. Okay, yeah, yeah, you, you, uh, you, but, but don't bill us for that until the client's actually paid. Ah, okay. Okay, so are we one firm or not? Well, we sort of say we are, but no. Um, and it sort of goes on like this, and we actually ended up doing quite a lot of work for France that we never got paid for, to my knowledge. But I've never been in a company where the internal billing system works. There's a hilarious story I heard in, in Total Nigeria, is that most oil companies are split up usually into upstream, which is the crude oil production, downstream, which is uh, refining, and then chemicals. But uh, Total Downstream, which produced all the lubricants and the, the, the fuels in Nigeria, refused to sell to Total Upstream because we hadn't paid our bills. Oh, and were, were, they, were they different f- legal entities? With different sets of accounts, or was it all just internal mishmash? Internal mishmash. Okay, with us, it, with us, it wasn't internal mishmash. We were we were legally separate entities with a common shareholding. Yeah, to, yeah. To be honest, we were probably like that. But in an in an oil company, everything is a separate legal entity. Projects are separate legal entity. Oh, wow. oh yeah. If you build a platform, it's a separate legal entity. Okay. Oh yeah. No, it's it's because of the. It, just again, massive tangent. But if if a, if a, if Shell builds a platform in the North Sea, that will typically be thirty percent Shell, thirty percent Exxon, twenty percent someone else, ten percent someone else, ten percent someone else. You will never ever see a wholly owned oil and gas facility in the world. Possibly in places like Russia and Saudi, they might. But any Western oil company will always split it up for 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 um for risk risk distribution purposes. And if it is a separate legal entity, you've got an extra layer of limited liability in there as well. I think so, yeah. I'm not sure how that comes in. But yeah, the idea is that if... Well, firstly, you want to be non-operated owner so that your risks are dispersed across the entire oil business. So, for example, Exxon do not operate in the North Sea. They Years ago, they got an agreement. They would go equal partner with Shell on any North Sea development. So Mm. Shell were the operating company. It had their name on the platform. But for every, if they pumped 100 million barrels, Exxon would be entitled to 50 million of them because okay. they have the partnership. So they cough up the money. And, but the, the in, which means you have to, for every project expense, you have to liaise with these stakeholders. Yeah. And that's different for each project. So you can be an oil company, say you have, Total Nigeria, depending on the facility you're working on, the facility and is a different. Each facility is a different development, so the stakeholders are different. So you have to get your budgets approved by a different set of people. So it is pretty complicated. Makes a lot of work for the contracting department. Yeah, it's a lot. It was a lot of work for for pretty much everybody, and and that's that that's all right. But I don't think that had anything to do with the, the separate legal entities had anything to do with the billing. I just think it was just a blithering incompetence. <laughs> um, and again, to tell another anecdote, I heard a, I had a great story when I was in Nigeria. We had to complete some well, and the company that did it said, "Look, you haven't paid us for years. You've got fifty million of a backlog." 
and we needed to complete this well. So the guy in charge went to the, uh, the finance department to get this invoice paid and he walked into this room that was stacked floor to ceiling with invoices, hard copy. <laughs> and he spoke to the half-wit who was in there and said, where can I find this invoice? How are these arranged? Is it by date? Is it by company name? And he's just looked at him and gone, I have no idea what you're talking about. So they had to go through these huge piles of invoices to try to find this invoice with 50 million on it that hadn't been paid for years. And they eventually found it. And they said to this, they, they paid it. They got it paid. And they said to the company, right, tell us when the money's in your account because you really need to mobilize. You need to complete this well. Anyway, a few days went by, no news. This guy I know is ringing up this company saying, where the hell are you? We need to, we've paid the money. Well, we haven't received the cash. So they've gone back to the finance department. They've paid 50 million to the wrong company. Oh, no. Now, I don't know what happened after that. I know that the proper company got paid. I don't know if they ever recovered this 50 million. Who was sitting there one day in his office and suddenly got 50 million in his account? But this is the kind of thing you were dealing with. So... When Total wasn't paying, Total Upstream wasn't paying Total Downstream, I suspect it was something more related to this than the division of... Just general craptitude. Just general craptitude. Anyway, carry on. So, So, um, yeah, sorry. Where were we? Um, You're an internal billing. Internal paying bills. You were were basically their offshore department. Yeah, we were basically their offshore department. Uh, Did they give you Indian names? Like John. <laughs> like John. And they gave you lessons in English. <laughs> what is the weather there, sir? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I could go on for hours on this in great detail, but it would be too identifying. So <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll stick to the salient points. Um, yeah, so, so, I mean, part of this sort of centralization, I mean, they didn't, us doing work for other business units and they're never actually getting paid for it. Luckily, I didn't do any, so none of my... Billable hours. It's, it's quite common to have a fixed plus variable salary. So oh, once, right. you've, once you've covered your costs, you get basically a profit share of. Okay. Of, so it's sort of um, once you've billed over the amount it's costing to employ you, you get a, a small token of uh, what you bill over that. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, but if it's not actually paid, it doesn't actually count. No. So luckily I didn't spend a couple of weeks doing that. Uh, some some other poor sap had to do it, but um, so we're overstaffed. Um, we are not conforming to the budget. The budgets were utter fantasy. Of course, they the, budgets, the budgets were were x people multiplied by y hours multiplied by hourly rate equals, and it was just complete utter fantasy. But we were hiring. We were being forced to hire people on the basis of these utter fantasy budgets. Uh, the CFO was trying to put the brakes on the hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, what's going on here, um, got excluded from the budgeting process. Oof. So it was the CEO and his underling, who was a very strong-willed lady. Was this new CEO an internal appointment? or He'd been sort of, It's a very complicated structure with holdings, and he, he oh, was sort of okay. been in the loop. And the old CEO had been levered outside, I believe, but I'm not sure, um, it was this uh, strong-willed lady upper manager who had levered him out the way. It's, a, it's a, an interesting power dynamic that it was a sort of a poisonous um, 
poisonous dipole of these two characters oh, right. okay. that sort of needed oh. each other and, play, and, and played off each other and could pass the buck onto onto each other. Um, so we're, we're in a situation where we can't possibly do what they're asking us to, and it's our fault because everything's our fault. Yeah, it's like I, I, I did the maths on it, and it's like, look, we could actually handle this with two people working hard. We've got six. You've got to go find more work. Well, if I so this extra time I'm spending to find more work, um, where's this where's this time coming from? Um, well, you've got eight hours in a day, so you do it. So, but you want me to do all these other things, and you want me to keep my 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 own productivity up. So you wanted me to spend twelve to sixteen hours in the office. Um, no comment. Um, and it sort of ended up in a situation where they were squeezing those of us that were producing to produce more and more and more to compensate the fact that we had dead weight. Yeah. Of their making. Um, we had a couple of trainees who were nice people, but they just couldn't hack the job. Right. Unfortunately. Um, and one way or another had to had to move on to other more suitable pastures. Um, but it just started to get tense, really, really tense from this point. And then and it's something you go into on 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 your blog a lot. Strong willed women who don't work who don't work well with other strong willed women. Oh yeah. <laughs> so this this upper manager starts bullying other strong willed women in management positions, Oof. allegedly for the benefit of the tape. Um <laughs> so one quit after having her uh, some of her duties passed on to one of her underlings I mean what what a way to force some someone out is that you 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 take away some of their duties and pass them down the chain oh yeah 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 uh, we were starting to be giving objectives that were just just completely like American law firm style but in a situation where you can't build like an American law firm right um we're just just getting insane. And so who, who was coming up with these? I mean, oh, this what, was all this was all from the budget. This was, this was this was the as 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 far as I'm aware, it was this strong-willed lady upper manager and uh, in Belgium. In Belgium, and she was she was Belgian. Yeah. Right. Okay. Dishing dishing out these. Well, she was making these fantasy budgets at at sort of uh, sort of single crystal level, as it were. Sorry, yeah. engineering speak. And then with, with the grant. When this got down to the, this just got cascaded down. And uh, if she needed to show an extra million in the budget, she'd just say, "Well, everyone can do an extra ten bill hours." Or oh something. yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. It, it started. It, it was a budget done from the top down rather than the ground up. But this, this, this is what all budgets are. I think I, I've, I've yet to see a budget that made any sense. And okay, that might be the limit of my experience. Maybe there's businesses out there that do really, really good budgets. But I've generally found that. Uh, the, the one time I really had to prepare a budget when I was running this scaffolding company in Russia, I'd been taught in the Middle East how to prepare a budget and you have to link, you have to show where every dollar's going to come from and yeah. you have to show that if you're going to do 10 million a year, you say 6 million will come from this project or these projects. The other 2 million will come from these activities in this project and you have to kind of name the projects. The projects yeah. have to exist and then you can add on maybe a million for work you don't know that's coming up. I was doing that and presenting it, and suddenly someone was saying, "Oh yeah, we we added another five million on." Uh, okay, but yeah. what what are the projects? Because I know all the projects that are coming up. There's not going to be one five million project magically appear yeah. out of nowhere because that requires you know quite a lot of work that would be being done now, 
So, but that you find that somebody needs to justify a budget or a, a revenue figure or a sales figure. So they just whack on a number. Yeah. And it was like, so, so hang on, hang on. Your budget for us in terms of build hours is like 50% more than we've ever done in this firm ever. Where is this going to come from? Um, you're just going to have to do some prospecting. It's like, that this is like a 50% growth in billable hour work. Um, what? Yeah. No, this is not happening. Um, and then they tried to put objectives on us based on that. And luckily I had a good contract and I turned around and said, look, you're proposing me something here that is manifestly worse than what's in my contract. So worst case scenario, I will enforce my contract or you can fire me. I didn't say you could fire me. That was the implication. <laughs> yeah. But it was like, I've got my contract. If you want if you want to propose a change, what's effectively a change to my contract, it's got to be at least as good, if not better. Well, it's got to be better than what's in my contract. Otherwise, I'll be enforcing this contract. They, they don't... I, I had this discussion in my last job. I was asked to change my contract. And I looked at it. And they wanted me to go from a permanent secure position to a very insecure, dodgy project position. And I just said, it isn't in my interest to make this change. Yeah. And the career manager and my manager almost fell off their chair. They're like, well, 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 well this is what the management have decided. I said, what? it's not in my interest to do this. And this is kind of why I want to go into HR a bit, because you... And let, well, it depends where you are. But if you're in a country where contracts don't mean anything, then of course you can do that. Then there's no point in having a job description or a contract. But quite often managers don't seem to understand what a contract is. Yeah. And they say, oh, you need to do this. Well, it's, it's, not in my, it's not in my interest. Exactly, it's bilateral. Hang on a minute. Why would I do that? And I said to my boss, why would I do it? And he said, because this is what's been decided. You don't have any choice. I said, I do have a choice because I've got a contract. Yeah. And, and when, when the, in the ensuing discussions, my line, which was very easy to defend, it was a well-dug trench with plenty of barbed wire and machine guns set up, was, I wish to work as per the terms and conditions currently laid out in my contract. And that's all I had to say. I just repeated that over and over again. And to, to my career manager, my manager, this was like, I was talking some alien language, you yeah. know. It's like, well, everyone else just gets on with it. Well, not everyone else. Well, I mean, I have basically the same, the same situation. Um, I graphed up the revenue model that was in my contract and the proposed revenue model. And as soon as you've done Death by Excel to it, you can see quite clearly that the proposed model involved me working an awful lot more for an awful lot less money. Exactly. Uh, so why would you do it? Yeah. No. Interestingly, another tangent, friendly works in finance was doing contract positions on contractor terms and never had any problem moving from contract to contract, was offered permanent terms and said, oh, sure, provided you pay me like a contract. Yeah. Which management said, no. No. <laughs> no. But another interesting tangent is that in Belgium, it's quite common, apparently, for professionals in sort of service industries to run on personal service contracts. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because in Belgium, like France, firing people is difficult. Uh, you, the, the, the time limits for firing people depends on how long they've been in the organization. It's hugely expensive, huge long time timelines to get rid of someone. Put them on a contract, you can have a Swiss-style three-month um, um, termination of contract limit, and it's rather more uh, rather more sensible, and for, from the, it simplifies the admin 
for the uh, for the business because they uh, all they have to do is pay a contractor. They don't have to worry about the social security. But didn't you say in Switzerland you can't do you this? Can't you do can't do this. So why not? Why they can't tried, you do this? They tried uh, to force it on us in Switzerland, and apparently it was before I arrived. Um, and apparently they had to basically sick a Swiss lawyer on them, Swiss employment lawyer. So why, why can't, for example, just tell our listeners here, because you explained it to me once, who may be on the blog, but you explained why you can't have, like in the UK, you can work as a contractor and avoid a lot of the bureaucracy with uh, employment law and national insurance and things just by employing a single person private company. So you can register yourself as a private contractor and you can go and work for a company. You can rake in the money, pay yourself dividends, avoid uh, national insurance and income tax and things. But you can't do that in Switzerland, you said. No, nope, that is disguised employment. If you, you are not allowed to run a company, a, a sole person company with only one client. Right, Because okay. it's, it's disguised employment. And what they're really big on and really serious on in Switzerland is pension provision. Right. If you are in a, a, a company, whether it's limited liability, which interestingly, unlike in the UK, where you can just put a pound of share capital down, you need a minimum of 20,000 uh, francs I've heard that. And you need to also, you need to be, you need to be, have an address, you need to be a oh, resident yes. permit in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. You can't just be some outsider in a PO box. No, you have to be a Swiss resident, mm-hmm. don't you? With an SA, you don't, I don't think. Uh, with, a, with a GmbH, I think you... Uh, I'm, I'm mixing acronyms between two languages. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's two in Switzerland. Basically, there's two types of limited liability company. There's the GmbH or SSARL. Yeah. Um, Société Anonyme, anonymous company. Uh, there's, yeah. uh, no, um, it, SA is Société Anonyme, which is an anonymous company. Yeah. The shareholders aren't listed in the um, um, commercial register. Yeah. Um, a GmbH or SAR. RL is a Société à Responsabilité Limitée, which is not anonymous. Right. Um, you need 100k minimum share capital for an SA in German AG. Okay. Yeah. You only, in inverted commas, need 20,000 in an SARL. Right. Or slash GmbH. But the shareholder, the shareholder has been mentioned in the... Uh, in the public registers. Yeah, yeah. No, so it's you, not anonymous. In Switzerland, you can go on to the public register and you can see who owns the company. Uh-huh. Yeah, and it's free. I mean, I had to do that for some research for my course. You go on to the Zeth- Swiss Register Zethics. of Commerce. Yeah, you can, you can do, and you can see the share capital. In, and also, you can see who has signatory powers. Yes. And that's really important. Yes. So well, you're going to see, you, I just saw you, Lou, were about to say something. Well, I was going to say with an, with an SA, because you don't see who the owner is, you can determine indirectly who the owner is by who has signatory authority so even for an SA you need to provide who has signatory authority yes because 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 if you make a contract if you sign a contract with this company you need to know whether the person signing the contract has the right that's true but you never see that in other countries except except in Russia you I yeah. for, for all the contracts I had to sign I had to provide my power of attorney yeah. so the power of attorney in you go to a notaire's office in in Russia, notary, notaire, whatever mm. it is, you go there, you sign a mass of documents, and they're all tied together with string and stamped and stapled, and there's all this uh, palaver doing that. And then you have this power of attorney, which entitles you to sign contracts on behalf of the company. And whenever you were doing business in Russia, even if you were, even if you were doing something really mundane like buying a hundred dollar piece of software from someone, they'd ask yeah. to see your power of attorney because they wanted to 
Firstly, they wanted to see you were allowed to do this deal. And I think it was also linked to getting paid. They had to show their bank that they had this, they had, were doing business with a legitimate company, so it wasn't money laundering. But I've heard that, I, no, I, and I know I've been told by my professors in Switzerland that the banks have a big book out the back with all the signatures in of who can sign the checks. Yeah. And when a check comes for clearing, the private banks go out to the back, they consult this big ledger. I can imagine it bound in leather, you know, and, and they, they look at the signature and see, you know, is this the right signature? Yeah. So, But you don't hear about that in Britain, do you? You just... No. Um, and I think that possibly this... Tangent. Um, this is sort of goes back to the, the British ideal of doing business on a handshake, which right. has made Britain so ripe for corruption by people coming in from cultures where there's just no trust. <laughs> the low-trust cultures coming in and taking advantage of a high-trust culture. Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. Switzerland is a high-trust culture, but with massive background safety checks S- on Swi- it, like the Handels Register. Switzerland's like Reagan on the Soviet Union. Trust, but verify. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I trust you, but I'm going to verify. And, and it's a question of what comes first, the trust or the verification. I think that, that, that you can't separate them. It's this whole no, chicken and egg problem. No. The, the, the two no. go together. And if you, if you try to explain a Swiss person a, a, a sort of trust handshake-based system that didn't have this verification behind, behind it, behind yeah. it, they'd be just like, but, but, obvious problem is obvious. Yeah. Um, and so there's 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 this great idea behind that. But the thing is, if if you were had your own GmbH SARL um, and were a sole contractor, you could pay yourself in dividend. You pay a lower amount of taxes. Yep. And Switzerland, it's not as low tax as people like to think it is. It's a lower tax environment, but it's not a low tax environment. Plus, we pay out of pocket for everything. Yeah. Um. You, if you paid yourself in dividend, you wouldn't pay any social security, so you wouldn't be building up a state pension, right? And you, you wouldn't be um, paying into a compulsory occupational pension, yep. Because you've got cap, because your income is technically is, is capital income, so yes. it doesn't it doesn't attract that, yeah. And there's no obligation to pay into the voluntary pension on the side, so you could entirely possibly large it up through your entire professional life. Get to sixty-five retirement age, you've blown it all on coke and hookers. Right. You've got nothing. You've been earning millions all the time, but you just blown it. Blown it. Um, oh yeah, can I have welfare, please? Right. And they don't want that. No, they don't want it. No. The, the, the Swiss system in general is extremely holistic, and they want people to be in a position at retirement to not have to fall back on welfare. But the Swiss seem to be pretty much the only country in the world that's anticipated the moral hazard. They're the only ones who've looked at it and said, well, if we provide the wrong incentives, you're going to get yeah. a portion of people who will screw with it, who will, who, will, who will take advantage of that. Absolutely. And they've decided, well, human nature being human nature, people will take the piss, so we'll, 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 yeah. we'll prevent them from doing that. Yeah. And the Swiss occupational pension, compulsory occupational pension system, is really, really well thought out. And funnily enough, when I said I worked for, even though I've never worked in Switzerland, I worked for a Swiss yeah. company. When I left the company, they gave me an AVS card. Yeah. So I'm registered with the Swiss pension, yeah. and I got a letter from somebody or other. I think it, I think it was uh, whoever they started the pension with, saying you now have this pension, 
Yeah. And it took me about eight goes to decipher it, even though it was in English, because I was trying to work it out. And it said, if you are over 65, you can claim this in cash. If you're not, you need to invest this back into, you need to nominate a company to, I can't remember, I've got the documents next door. To, to take care of it for to you. To take care of it. Yeah. So, so you can either leave it with us or do this. But it was compulsory. And even though my company was doing this quick work around and avoiding French law, they still had to pay a Swiss pension. And yep. when I left, they emailed me, they, they posted me the original card. Yep. And I still have the funds in the Swiss social security system, which I can draw on when I retire. And you've presumably also got a second pillar, the, the compulsory uh, That's right. L- yeah, LLP. Yeah. Exactly. So I had to contribute to that, which is part of the, the same thing. And, and your employer matched that? They matched that. So... So there was, yeah, there was no getting around it, even though they employed us through Switzerland for this to avoid tax and avoid French or any other country's social security contributions. There was, they were still obliged to contribute. And when I left, I still have somewhere, it's in a folder somewhere, the original AVS card with my number and all this. And if you get a job in Switzerland afterwards, that is your AVS number. Exactly. They, they, They will contribute to that. Exactly. So, so they've, They've kind of done what a lot of countries haven't do done and avoided the freeloader problem. They've just said, look, yep. you know, again, we're a serious country. If you want to be unserious, you can move next door to France or Germany, but we're serious. And anyone who's here who is working had better be putting money aside. And if you've moved to Switzerland under Schengen Treaty rules, you're working. Oh, yeah. Until you've got yeah, permanent yeah. residency, you're you're working. I mean, when you when you move to Switzerland, you are not in the social security absolutely system until you have paid in for a year yeah and if, it's and if and if you're if you're a student well you get a different category so if you've turned up to do it be a student now i'm not swiss resident because i actually i'm resident in france i never had to go through that i just commute in each day yeah the university had no problem with that so i'm resident in france so i had to get i bought myself insurance in france Nobody told me to, but you'd be a bit daft you'd to be living here to, yeah. without insurance. So I bought health insurance here. And if I get a job, then I'll have to pay tax. Oh, I still have to pay taxes in France. But my colleagues in in the university, like, for instance, the Austrian I'm friends with, she got her Swiss residency card. But there's because she's there on a student basis. Yeah. There's a whole load of conditions that she's not eligible to public funds. Yep. You know she's not. El- I think she's eligible to work. No, it's just you're here as a student. There's none of this. Oh, but she's. I mean, she's from Austria. She could change that on a. If she wanted to work, she could work. She could, but she needed the residency permit. Yeah, she'd get a different and that residency says, permit. Yeah, she'd have to get a different residency permit. She can't just turn up here and decide to do whatever the hell she wants. Yeah. It's and uh, yeah, so yeah, Switzerland's a serious country. What's interesting is that it's imply it's applying the same rules as the UK, but because the Swiss system is set up differently to the UK, they're applied differently. Now, the big deal in the UK is that people can rock up and sign and sign on to some degree because the UK has a non-contributory social security system. Yeah. You can't do that in Switzerland. Now, the Swiss interpretation, because you've got the right to look for work for three months. And in the, the way the UK applies that, if I've understood it rightly, is that you can rock up, apply for public support while you look for work for three months. Right. Switzerland says, hmm, well, you can be here as a tourist for three months. You have the right to look for work for three months. These are the same thing. Yeah. So you can't even apply until you've found a job. 
until you've found a job, until you've got a job offer, you are a tourist. Yeah. Because there's three months here, three months there. Let's call them the same thing. There's no reason not to call them the same thing. And the, the other thing we were told when, again, it didn't apply to me, but I was listening. When we were, when I, when I first went to the university during the induction, was somebody told us, you need to have health insurance here in Switzerland. Now, you can apply through the university, and it's something like 80 Swiss francs a month or something quite cheap. cheap. That's cheap. If you don't do that and you decide you're not going to bother, you will be automatically enrolled into some Swiss government scheme, which is a hell of a lot more expensive than that, (laughs) and it's mind-bogglingly expensive, whether you like it or not. Within three months, they will assign you, they will enroll you in this and send you a bill. And as I said on my blog, if you don't pay your bills in Switzerland, you end up on some register. Oh, yes. There is public debt registers. <laughs> public debt register that you, ca- you can't move if you're on that. You can't get yourself off it. Basically, you're a non-person. You're living under a bridge. Because every time you want to rent an apartment, you want to do anything, they will check this public debt well, register. They, now they force you to check it and send oh. them the extract. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so basically, if you turn up in Switzerland with no health insurance, you will be offered... Certainly in the university, a cheap alternative. You can sign yep. up to this, and if you don't, unlike the UK, whereas if you don't bother, you just turn up and get free healthcare. Well, no, in Switzerland, you'll be enrolled in an extremely expensive program, and if you don't pay the bill, then basically you can't live in Switzerland because you can't move. So again, they they take they take the freeloader problem pretty seriously. There was a while back. There was a a story in the press. And uh, depending which segment of the press it was, it was a scandal or not. Um, there was a Dutch family who were deported because they were dependent on, on welfare and not unemployment insurance. Unemployment insurance is an insurance. It's separate from, work, from yeah, welfare. Yeah, yeah, it's welfare, yeah. welfare. Yeah. And this family apparently had no inclination to get themselves off it. So they were deported. I mean, yeah. you're here under treaty rights. Treaty, the treaty rights are for you to exercise employment or be self-supporting. You're not. Choose summer. Yeah, that's, some, that's something actually on the subject of Brexit I don't think people realise. And to be honest, this wasn't advertised to me as a British citizen as part of the EU either. When I moved to France, I didn't realise to exercise my rights for free movement in the EU, I had to be working. Yep. I had to demonstrate that to exercise my rights, I had to, pro- yeah, I had to prove I was working. So I had to provide a job contract. Yep. Now, I don't have that now because I'm not working, but I am a student. Now, whether the French accept this, being a student in another country, that's a very grey area I haven't looked into, which is why I bought the private insurance. Yeah. If I got a job that in Switzerland, that would work because I'm economically productive. But I don't actually have... Whether I have a right to live in France right now... Well, you, you own property, so it would be difficult. Do, do you have permanent, permanent residence? Not yet. Not the yet. five years yeah. comes in January, and I will immediately, oh, the, yeah. day I will, uh, the day that 10th of January comes, I will apply yeah. for permanent residency, because yeah. I will have been in France five years. Now, because I'm in the Haute-Savoie, they understand that people being in university in Switzerland isn't completely stupid. If I applied mm. in Paris, they'd go, well, sorry, you're not in university in France. We don't know why you're here. Where is not France? Well, yeah, where is not France? So 
in January, I'll apply for permanent residence, which should solve a lot of these problems. But the reason I kind of get away with it is, firstly, I'm not claiming public funds. I have enough cash in the bank and I've uh, got my own health insurance. Yeah. And if anybody would ask, I'd say I'm in university here and I own property here. I'm, I, I'm in university in Geneva. I own property in France. But you can't just rock up in a country. Yes. Because you're an EU citizen. Decide this is where you're going to live with no job, no funds, and decide it. But unless Britain, it's the UK, unless it's the UK, in which case you can do whatever you want. Because because there's a non-contributory system that is because because you because the UK gives housing and money and healthcare, and healthcare. to people who have never worked in their lives. They have to treat people from foreign the same as they treat people from the UK. Otherwise, it's dis- it's discriminatory, and this is. This is something that's quite maddening because it's it, it's 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 part of the problem with the EU one size fits all because the EU norm is a contributory system. I mean, if you leave school in France and haven't worked and haven't paid into a social security system, you're pretty screwed. Yeah. Um, whereas in the UK, it's the same. I mean, it's the same as if you've been working for twenty years and fall on bad times. You're it's, it's, it, the the UK system doesn't discriminate between those two situations. Whereas if Basically, everywhere else on the continent does. And people don't realise this. People think that the, the continent is this kind of socialist utopia. In France, to access the healthcare system, you need a carte vitale. Mm-hmm. It's this green card. Because I was employed through a Swiss company, I never got one. I got yeah. really good healthcare from privately. But because I wasn't employed in the French social security system, it was a bit of a fudge. I never got the carte vitale, which is why I can't access the French healthcare system. Probably rightly so, in the views of Frenchmen, because I've never paid taxes here. But you cannot turn up in France. Oh, you can access a doctor. You can walk into any doctor. And the first thing he'll say is, do you have a carte vitale? Mm -hmm. And if you don't, he'll say, never mind, but you need to pay me. Yep. But you cannot access that system without paying, without a carte vitale. To get a carte vitale, you need to be working here and registered with the social security or you need to be a french citizen and born here and all that you can't just turn up and decide i'm going to go to a french doctor oh they'll see you but they'll want to see your money first in fact a lot of doctors work outside the carte vitale system mm-hmm. a lot of them say no social security so the doctors in france vary between very good and absolute shit and i've seen most uh, both extremes and everything in between and quite often when I've seen somebody, they've said to me, you realise that you can't pay by carte vitale. I said, no, I've got private insurance and they're okay. But that system means private insurance here isn't that expensive. Yeah. What's, you, it, what's it cost you a month? Um, it's €1,200 Euros a year. So it's, yeah. uh, what's that, 100 a month? Okay, that's not so far off Switzerland because I'm paying... For me, I think I'm paying about 180 Swiss francs, which is going to be... I'm not very good at arithmetic in my head. Uh, that's going to be about 140, 130, 140 euros. Yeah. I guess. Engineering fudge. Um, but the first two and a half K is off the top, is out, out of pocket. Well, I don't have that. I don't have the... What's it called? And it's called the... What's it called? The... Deductible. Yeah, what's it called when you get a, when you get a car? They don't call it deductible. It's a deductible. They no, they call it something else in a car. I can't remember what it is. Anyway, uh, own risk. No, something. No, something else. Yeah. And in the UK, when you get the uh, 
What's it called? The bit you have to pay... It's policy. It's a deductible. I'm pretty sure it's a deductible. It's called something else. That's too long a word for the Brit- average British driver to know. It's something else. <laughs> I can't remember what it's called. Um, anyway, I, I'm, I'm not sure what mine is. I think it's basically if I'm a complete wreck and I need a million dollars worth of treatment, I'll pay it first thousand or something. But the thing is, is because of France's healthcare system, there's a very competitive and mm. very lively private health insurance market because also if you earn over a certain amount you've got to have private insurance or pay a certain amount out of pocket anyway that's right yeah the car feet um my 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 friend's Mother was doing some fudge to get on uh, the social so that the cat vital would cover the whole thing they did some financial fudge to minimize her income or something but it's it's that's kind of how it works is most people in France have the cat vital which covers you for pretty much everything. But if you've got a good job, you'll top it up with private insurance, which is reasonably priced. It's $100 a month or €100 a month for your whole family and stuff, which covers everything else, which means you get a bit better hospital. You can go and see the doctors who aren't covered by the the socialised system. But in the UK, that market's been totally wiped out. I mean, if you go private, it's like 8000 a year with Boopa. Well, you've got Boopa, you've got the Boopa top-up. My parents have got a Boopa top-up which is if the NHS won't treat you within X weeks for such and such a condition right. or Y weeks for such and such a condition that that they'll do it that they'll do it private but i mean the uk health insurance market is like booper and a couple of other smaller players it's and it's ludicrously expensive whereas in france you've got this top up system and you've got i mean i i applied for student uh, insurance and it was doing pretty well i was down to a, quite a reasonable thing until mm. they asked my age and they went what the fuck is a 40-year-old guy doing in the student? No, please refer to our... It wasn't quite the elderly... It wasn't quite the elderly citizens. I wasn't quite there yet, but it was certainly, you know... And um, In fact, this is age discrimination. I should sue. And I should also sue the bank in Switzerland, uh, post-finance. I asked to open a Swiss um, uh, student, a account. student account. And I again, it was going very well. She was talking to me until I got to my date of birth, and she said, "No, the maximum age is thirty-five, because oh. they don't they don't think that forty-one-year-olds should be students." To be fair, they probably had a point. They prob- she probably looked at me and thought, "Why are you pissing around <laughs> university <laughs> at that age? Sad bastard, get yeah. back into work." So yeah, I mean, I but anyway, I I got a a pretty comprehensive health insurance cover. Now, I don't know what would happen if I got struck down with some horrendous disease and I ended up being... I don't know. I mean, I'm... I don't know. I mean, I have read the small print, but when the rubber hits the road, if I got struck down with lymphoma, would they treat me for 10 years? I don't know. But is or would I be back in the UK imposing myself on the NHS? I don't know. But... uh Having come here as a foreigner without access to the socialised health system, I did find the private health insurance reasonably priced, yeah. and it's a, it's it's a competitive market. And it's I looked at three or four companies, and they were all exactly the same price. So it's either a cartel yeah. or it's perfect market competition. Well, the, the, the Swiss the Swiss system that you you've got a compulsory healthcare uh, health insurance system, which covers the basic and catastrophic treatment various deductibles from for adults between 300 and 2500 francs um and then there's various top ups for private rooms in hotels the, the, the swiss are it's one way that one way that they're not quite so serious is that they're quite into homeopathy and things like i mean 
I mean, to be to be honest, in Tim's apartment here, there is a broad spectrum homeopathic remedy on tap. <laughs> what are you looking at? Yeah. <laughs> the bathroom over there. Oh. Um, yeah, it's like they'll they'll you can get top ups to fund that that kind of thing. And we do with health insurance every year, or UK people do with car insurance. They, yeah, they up and down their prices every year and try yeah. and hook people in and and things. Mine hasn't gone up, so I don't have the right to get out of the contract. If you if it goes up, you have the right to break the contract. Okay, up to a certain date, and it's just you you look in November when the prices are published. Has it gone up? If yes, can I get it cheaper elsewhere? If not, no. And then for people, I mean, for for my family, it costs about seven hundred francs a month. That's, um, that's about what six hundred euros. So what five hundred quid? Something like that. Yeah, so yep. six grand a year. Which which to a Brit would sound extortionate, but you that's I mean I'm if, not paying that in taxes. And no, it's tax deductible. And and if and if you were to somebody said this ages ago, if you were to if you were dying or you had some horrific disease, what's the market rate of a doctor? It's pretty high. Yeah. Six thousand a year for the full medical treatment to your family? It's, it's market rate. Yeah. Well, we've got, we've got no deductible on the kids and two and a half K each francs on, on the adults. Because if basically, if you're ill and you're going to have a lot of treatment, you take the lowest deductible. If you're not, you take the highest. Yeah. And what's interesting is it really focuses the mind on, do I really need to see a doctor? Exactly. Oh, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Do, I, I've got the sniffles. Do I need to spend 50 francs to see a doctor? No. See, this is the thing in France what people don't realize is... People think that the health service in France is free. If you have that carte vitale, which entitles you to access to access uh, the French medical system, you pay. If you want to see the doctor and say, I've got a cold, you will pay 30%. The state will pick up 70% and you will pay 30%. Yeah. So if the bill for a doctor is 30 euro, you will still be paying 9 euro. And that does focus the mind. Now, if you've got some horrific form of cancer and it's a million euro, then the state picks up 100%. Yeah. But they have all these different levels in there, depending on what's wrong with you, whether how much they'll pick up. But for most of the French medical system, you will pay 30% and the state picks up 70%. Which means, unlike the UK, you have to think, do I really need to go to the doctor? Yep. Do I really need this treatment? If I've got a bit of a cold, am I going to use an ambulance as a taxi? Oh, you don't do that in Switzerland. You don't do that. I've heard Ooh, in Switzerland. That is painful. I heard in Switzerland, a drunk guy stumbled out of a nightclub, fell on the floor, picked up by an ambulance, driven home, and 600 franc fine. Thank oh, you very he much. Got, he got away with that lightly if it was only 600. Yeah. you you If, if an ambulance picks you up because of your own stupidity, you get a bill. Yeah, if you self-present at A&E and you didn't need to be there, the insurer is not... Uh, no, accident. Oh, interestingly, accident and illness are two different things, and the, and it's always better to have an accident than an illness in Switzerland. Because right. The the uh, the, uh, the full amount is covered, but with the health insurance, you pay your deductible, and then you pay ten percent until you've paid a total of seven hundred yeah. extra over the deductible, and then after that, within the calendar year, um, the health insurer picks up the rest. Yeah. For people who can't afford it, there's subsidy. And it was a bit of umming and ahhing because uh, there were people who were taking the subsidy and then spending it on top-ups. Right. And it yeah. was, should we be subsidizing people's top-ups when yeah. we've got unsubsidized people who aren't who can't afford top-ups? Yeah. And they came and they said, you're free to use it on any form of health insurance. Okay. Grumble, grumble. 
Um, and for people on social assistance, so welfare, welfare, uh, it's the uh, the commune right. that picks it yeah, picks yeah, up one hundred percent. So it's I mean, what what distresses me immensely about the whole healthcare provision debate in the UK is that it's either the saintly version of the NHS with halos and angels and ah, or America high, or no, a cartoon top hatted villain version of the American system exactly where, where people get shot on the street for a, and, then, yeah. and then were searched for a health yeah. no that, that, that doesn't happen and uh, um, no but it's, it's, it's what I've written about on my blog there's, there's various things which are akin to religion in the UK the BBC is one NHS and NHS is the other it's, impo- it's impossible to reform you speak to anybody and suddenly, it's as if you're in the middle of Kuwait, telling somebody that they should convert to Judaism. Oh, it's, it's, it's the reaction's the same. It's just these eyes popping out of the head. Whereas, the, the funny thing is, is in the UK you have such a thing, and in America mm. you have these things called healthcare debates. I've never heard a single mainland European even discuss it. I've never heard of a healthcare debate in France. In Switzerland, there is, there is, there's a certain, you can probably guess which segment of the political spectrum who would like there to be a single health insurer. But the basics of the system of buying health insurance compulsory, compulsorily, that is never put into question. The question is, do you buy it off one of a multitude of private providers or yeah. is there going to be a monopolist provider? But you, but you have to pay something, yeah. The, 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 the idea that you shouldn't have to contribute to your own healthcare needs it's just, it's just not there. And this, this is what I think a lot of Brits don't get, that they think that Britain's this free market capitalist place and the mainland Europe's really socialist. One of the great uh, contradictions to that is the French road system. Yeah, péage. In France, they think it's a human right that the state should pay for Spanish dance lessons. You pay <laughs> your taxes, you go to the local foyer des arts, or the local Marie, and there will be posters on the wall advertising basketball lessons for 40-year-olds. Underwater basket weaving. And and they provide the instructor, who's a state employee. Or you can, if you want a Spanish dance lesson, they'll provide uh, an instructor. But you want to take the motorways, well, you're paying out of your pocket, mate. And you've got to get out your credit card, literally on the road and stick it in the machine and that will charge you. And that's the funny thing in France. Yes. It's a real it's a there's there's aspects of France where it it's less socialist than the UK. Oh absolutely. The health entirety of the healthcare provision yeah. is less. The road network um, and I was I made the mistake of following my TomTom yes, and then going through the middle of Annecy and it's totally illogical um, I don't even know what you're doing out near Chamonix. I wasn't out near Chamonix. You said before you went through some village near Chamonix. I know that was a different. That was another occasion. Oh, okay. Well, that wasn't okay. today. That would have been quite a detour. I mean, it's okay, a very that nice would area. Been, that there. would have been a detour. Um, that would be a Tom Tom that hated me. Um, I think it was. No, did you have? Did you turn off the? Did, were you trying to save money by not taking the A forty one straight no, from Geneva? Yeah, I took the A forty one. It's just it took me. Um, I know it was the signs took me off early. The, the signs said Annecy right. My Tom Tom said actually said Annecy oh, straight yeah. on. Oh no, but there's three exits for Annecy. That's not what the signs say. Oh, oh no, it does. It said An- Annecy, Annecy Sud, Annecy Centre or something. Oh, okay. I oh, know you follow follow the GPS because I oh, live in, I live in the south okay. of Annecy, and if you get off at North Annecy, you're crawling through medieval streets. And That's what I did. 
It was very pretty. The old the old town is very nice. Oh, it's all it's all pretty. Annecy's lovely. For all for all the listeners, come out to Annecy. It's really it's a it's a city I'd never heard. Of. City. It's a town I'd never even heard of until I bought the place here, and it's it's beautiful. We've got a big lake, a castle, a chateau, and my place. And my place is full of how much alcohol do I have here? Lots. Exactly. Well, it's that that bottles. Yeah, the levels dropping quite sure. rapidly. So if anyone wants any Woodford Reserve rye, I mean, they better get it quick. I can, I can switch to something less exquisite. No, no, can. no. You can you, you you can finish that bottle. That's fine. I, I won't. Finish, that would be a bit excessive. But if any if anybody wants if anyone wants to come out and share a drink, and if they want some rye, they're going to move quite quickly. Don't do what I did and end up stuck in a one way system through a tower block estate because a lane just without any forewarning turned off into it. That, that tends to happen. So, um, Town planning. <laughs> so, so going back to your company age, what, oh, yes. what, what, what happened at the end of that? What was the so, end result? Well, basically, are they still a going concern in Switzerland? Um, good question. Um, they are still there. They, they, the, the number of employees is rather reduced. Um, basically, to cut a very, very long story short, there was massive bullying, um, which caused... Lots of hassles because when, when you've got a situation that's not going well financially for whatever reason, it gets tense. It gets very, very tense. It gets a lot of stress. The, yes. the, the local management were um, basically local management resigned management roles because well, one quit, first of all, was bullied out. The other one decided that uh, they'd had enough and uh, resigned the management role, said, I just want to be a normal cold face worker. Um, because I just can't, I just can't hack being the interface between decisions cascading down from on high that have no bearing. I mean, it's real Hitler in the bunker stuff. Yeah, yeah. Here yeah. of uh, this division needs to take this thousand hours of billing that doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it it just went crazy. And at a certain point, everyone bar two people of sixteen, I think it was. Um, have been off with stress, including me. Yeah, yeah. No, I can understand. Uh, that. It, it yeah. just went utterly mental. Um, and then maneuvering, sort of the upper management lady maneuvering people to hate on someone locally. It was a lot of a lot of scapegoating. Very very totalitarian. Of uh, um, if you, if uh, sort of if you're not in with the the, the unitary company policy, then uh, there's no place for you here. If you're not on message. Yeah. If you're not on message, and then in an exit interview, someone said, "Well, I just did what you said, which was that if I'm not on message here, I'm out." At least, so you, I'm at out. least you had exit interviews. I, I never I had did, one. I of them. didn't. I didn't. But uh, this uh, exit interviews. Yeah, I'm, the number of employees I've known who said, oh, "I never got an exit interview." Well, yeah, you won't get an exit interview because they don't, once you resign, they don't give a shit who. You no, are. that was it. But this person strangely got an exit interview. I'm not quite sure why. But um, see, I'd always do them. I think if I ever, if if in a, if I ever, if I ever, I was in an HR position, I'd I'd do exit interviews yeah. just to hear what they've got to say. Oh, HR HR was mercifully small, right, in the organisation, but its sole responsibility was to represent management, upper management, sure, in respect of of the employees. Apparently, messages were passed the other way, but its primary role was. Trying to put the employees back in their box. Yeah, that's that's HR everywhere now, unfortunately. Yeah. And um, basically, practically everybody, with a few exceptions, everyone who was any good in the organisation either quit or was fired. Um, the the best back office staff were fired. Uh, one of whom now works with me, and very very happy to right. have her. Um, and so yeah, basically, I I I quit. Anyone who's who was even half decent was either fired or quit. Um, 
Oh, in the in the meantime, we had to stop doing things the way they did things there. Um, yeah. And they were dealing largely with large accounts, big companies who had inter- internal people playing interface who knew what they were really could have done the job that we were doing themselves that played interface. Uh, our clients were typically smaller, needed to be held by the hand, needed a lot more explanation. We were forced to use um, their formats of letters. They were very short format, almost, right. almost automated generated. It was basically, um, so this has happened in your case and uh, what do you want to do about it? Which was totally useless to our clients who needed to be told, okay, this has happened. This is why it's happened. Uh, we can do this, 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 or this. We recommend this because. Right. Do you want to discuss it? So whereas whereas I was writing a two, three, four page letter, it, they were suddenly getting these these computer generated almost letters. Basically, tell us tell us what to do. Right. Okay. And and this just didn't fly. Yeah. And uh, oh, in a fit of hubris, uh, the case management software you can buy this off the shelf. Right. Which we we have an off the shelf package. Um. They bought one and they insisted that it was going to be an empty shell. Right. And that they were going to fill it themselves. And the number of man hours oh, to fill that up, yeah. Expended to fill this up, to try in a kind of central planning way to try and foresee every eventuality. And it was just insane. And this was all billed out to the individual business units. So they were they were draining cash from us from there. Yeah. We were paying for shared services like IT and things like that. And they're draining cash off there, and then you got a problem in cash. Right? Can you just bung all this onto the onto the clients? That's what that's what uh, legal people normally do. I mean, I, I've I've recently got a bill from a solicitor. Yeah. And I took one look at it and went, uh, nah. I said, you've got two options: reduce it by fifty percent, or provide me a full breakdown of your billing hours, who worked on it, on yeah. what date doing what activity between June and now. Knowing full well, he was going to go, okay, I'll just pay, I'll just deduct the 50% because he won't want to do that. But basically, I paid him a, a lump of money and he's just decided, oh, I'll just take 50% of that. Let's see what I can get away with. Yeah. So weren't you guys just bunging this onto the client? We didn't have that kind of clientele. That's what they wanted, oh, right, That's okay. what they wanted us to do. Effectively, right. they were wanting us to bill ever, ever larger amounts for ever less work. Yeah, the, yeah, and it just it's it it's it's just we weren't in a dominant position where we could abuse, and I don't think it's a, an excessive word to use to abuse the clients in that. In that were manner. your were your clients big or are they quite no, small? Well, exactly. Small, but they're, they're small, small companies. They'll they'll question every line. If this, you're if you're from Nestle, yeah, exactly. If you're if you're billing monthly to Nestle, they'll pay no matter what and how many zeros are on the end. But if you're billing a small two man company, yeah, yeah, it's just it's just we weren't. In a position to morally, ethically. In fact, I quit a job previously, partly over their over their billing policy, which was just ridiculous. I mean, they had they had, they were just a an admin fee generating machine. This yeah. other this this previous company, and uh, amongst the things that caused me to take a decision to leave there was that I found their 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 billing policy immoral. I mean, a large bill, if it's justified, is justified. But a large bill for doing nothing, effectively. But I, I've, I, I don't think it was on my blog where a discussion got going once in the comments about people giving their feedback on lawyers and billing. And I can't remember who it was. I could probably dig back through the archives. But somebody mm. said they worked for a law firm once and the, the senior partner had to bill 
a certain number of hours per week. Oh, so he just did. So he no, he just wander over to one of the oh, juniors. Yes, yes, you mentioned go, this, yeah. Hey, how's that case going? And you'd say it's going okay. And the secretary would come back and say, right, the senior partner's just billed an hour on this job. And you had to make that up yourself. So he's just chucking hours on there. I have I have seen this when we've done correspondence work with American firms. I, I had a senior partner at $900 an hour doing donkey work. I was like, yeah. why is the senior partner on $900 an hour doing this donkey exactly, work? Exactly, yeah. There is no reason. This is... This is um, it was a little bit above paralegal work, but it yeah. could have been done by a junior and they were a big firm. There was, it could have been done by someone on 200, 250 an hour. And the worst thing is you see some trainee at like 180 does it. And then a junior partner at 450 looks at it. And then a senior partner at 900 looks at it. And you, and you get sent this massive bill to do something totally trivial. And it's like, actually, you could have asked me that. Yeah, exactly. But it, but this, this is how I think they work. And my... my my dad won't mind saying this. He's long retired now. I'm sure he's listening to this. So he'll, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'll probably get a bollocking for, uh, for saying this. But he, he, he said he was working um, on cases that were lasting. He was in reinsurance in the city yeah. of London. And there was some case that he worked a whole load of his career on. Some Swedish company, insurance company had collapsed. I think mm. the owner had hung himself in a park or something. It was a massive scandal. And suddenly Swiss Re and Munich Re were all massively exposed. So his firm got involved in a case that went on for about five years and ended up with a settlement. So you can imagine the billing discipline on oh, that. Massive. And, and I, I, think, I think he told me, I'm going to get right bollocking if he hears this. I hope maybe he won't listen to it. He said he used to do a bit of work, pass it to the next person, and then sit in his office doing kind of logic puzzles and just sort of teaching, doing something, you know, because doing something more interesting. And all this was being billed. I mean, Lord knows what yeah. hourly rate was being billed. It must have run into the millions, and, oh. you know. And, and, and this, this is what happens. And, but when, you, when you're an individual like I am, or you're a small company, yeah. you hang on a minute, you're, you're going to be looking at this. Yeah. I, mean, I, have, I have lawyer friends who live in a sort of US-style billing environment. And the number of build hours they do a day, and and it's it, it's crazy. And, and some of it is, oh, I'll just look at that file, not point one hours. Oh, I'll just look at that file, not point. Allegedly, exactly. yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, our billing policy is we bill the time actually physically spent on it, and in an eight-hour working day, there are not eight intellectually intense hours. No, I mean this is this is sort of university finals revision level intensity you can't keep that up you can't for keep a career not <laughs> for a career you, you go insane you can't even keep that up for a day there've been a few days where i've built eight hours but it took me i'd like to start working at seven or eight in the morning and finish at 9 p.m and just be utterly wrecked by the experience because yeah. that is actual time i've spent actually working you just can't possibly do that and, and i'm 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 sort of an all or nothing yeah, yeah, yeah. guy. I'm, yeah. I can't work at a low level the whole day. And right. if I could, I if if I was working at a low level the whole day, I'd be billing the same amount but at a lower hourly rate. Yeah, yeah, I'd yeah. Like to think that the amount I bill is justified. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's just that's how, that's how law that's how law firms work though. In fact, they're probably one of the only professions that get away with that. It's um it's interesting just to di- di- divert a little bit. Which is probably a discussion I'll end up having with uh, William of Ockham uh, when I do my podcast with him soon. It's uh, but there was an interview between Ben Shapiro, 
who's a lawyer. Yeah. And Tucker Carlson, the journalist. And the discussion was on, you know, when the, when the, when the, the robot lorries come, Ben Shapiro said, you know, all these two million lorry drivers are going to become unemployed in the US. And he asked Tucker Carlson, would you ban that? And Tucker Carlson said, yeah, I would. I said, look, we need to maintain the jobs. Now, there's an economic argument to have. But Ben Shapiro was all, ah, free markets, free markets. Hang on, you're a lawyer. Yeah. How can somebody who's from one of the most protected industries claim that they're free markets? Hang on a minute. I mean, and, and you notice when everyone starts talking about, you know, the free markets and, you know, technology and it should, this laissez-faire, it protect, there's an, the people who really, the, a lot of the ruling classes come from the protected industries, yeah. law firms. They just call them accountants, doctors. They just call them professional associations. Exactly. Professional associations. guilds or unions. Exactly. So it's always the people at the bottom are, well, you know, your job's moved on. I mean, a lot of this, why are there barriers entry to law? Why can't anybody practice the law? Oh, no, this is, this is really important to the, you know, the, 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 the well-being of the nation that everybody should have this extremely, you know, basically a cartel deciding how yeah. much, how much it should be. Funnily enough, when you call a lawyer in Paris, you get the same price from all of them. Yeah. If you were to do that and you were selling selling something, if you're selling oil, if you were selling oil, yeah, you, yeah, exactly, you'd be all of a sudden you'd be you'd be in jail for collusion. But our law, well, you know, it's all set by the by the governing body. Yeah. So it, I found that quite ironic, and I made a note of it on Twitter today that you know you've got a lawyer saying, oh yeah, we should all be free markets. And it's, I'm not a lawyer, and and also <laughs> also who's what what what. Profession seeks to will will actually gain from autonomous vehicles going wrong. Lawyers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, lawyers gain from everything. You make everything subject to legislation. And but on but on the other hand, things like basic contracting that is ripe for automation. Of course, it is. Absolutely. Most, most of the work that divorces. Yeah. I mean, f- fill in your assets. You know, get yeah. someone to check it, and it works out an algorithm. Who gets what? I mean, there's a and, and why isn't this stuff offshored? Why have you got these law firms in London? Surely, surely Indians and Chinese can be doing all this. Oh no, because they all need to be approved under the English law system. What you English in Chinese well, can't, can't I mean, learn you, English you law? In, you've worked in um, in Russia, and a lot of Russian companies like to do contracts under English law. Of course they do, because it's easy to understand. Yeah, have mm. you ever read a French contract? You don't know which where, where the start and end is. <laughs> yeah, so everyone like everyone likes to do that. But funnily enough, something else my dad told me was. Um, when he was working for this law firm in London, I think it was probably in the late 90s, early thousands, they were expanding all over the world and they were mm. turning up and, I mean, I think he was involved in setting up the office in the UAE and they were, his company were expanding a lot of places. Anyway, they went into St. Petersburg and they got run out of town pretty quickly. Yeah. And all the lawyers back in London were all complaining about this. And my dad sort of, well, he, I don't know if he said it at the time, but certainly when I discussed it with him after he retired... He said, if a Russian law firm turned up in London and said, right, we're a bunch of Russian lawyers, we're going to start working here, they wouldn't be allowed to do it. No. You can't just turn up as a Russian and say, I'm going to start, I'm going to start providing yeah. legal services. The law society won't let you. But on the other hand, no one in their right mind who's in the UK would want a contract under Russian law. No, but the fact is that these Russians, even if the Russians were saying, we'll do your work under English law, yeah, they weren't allowed to. You had to be approved by the law society. Mm. But this company, you know, his company was thought they could go into Russia and say, right, we're going to start doing well. 
this is Russia. Okay, you might be contracting under English law, but this is Russian territory. Now bugger off. Mm. So, and well, the Russians, <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. They went into St. Petersburg, and I think it was 2002, 2003. And yeah, it was a risky business. But that's the thing. I mean, it was just, I don't know how we got onto this, but uh, I just thought it was quite ironic that you've got a lawyer. Ben Shapiro is a trained lawyer from the Harvard Law School talking to a journalist about oh, free, free market economics. Well, his value comes from that Harvard Law degree. I think, I think part of it is not... It's sort of... A lot of people haven't internalised that... Yeah, the, 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 the barriers to entry to certain professions are just the same as other barriers to entry. That it, It's different when we do it. Exactly. So it's like, no, we're, 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 we're different. It's not, it's, it's not the same as a closed union shop. And it isn't quite the same as a closed union, union shop. Um, I mean, you can do paralegal work. You can do, you can do contracting. Yeah. Just you can't represent in front of, yeah. in front of a, a, a tribunal or court. Um, so it isn't quite the same as no, you can't you 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 can't even put a pen on a contract unless you've got this law degree and a, and, a, and have passed the bar exam, and I think that possibly that's the difference in people's minds, and it's partly being British. It's partly it's a it's a class thing. The closed union shops were some antediluvian thing that people in overalls did, whereas whereas what we do is not uh, is, and it's, it's professional it's the same thing it's, yeah, it's, exactly. it's professional and the barrier is not the same it's just can you sign this or can you file it or can you go to the tribunal it, but it is still a, you're right you're absolutely right that it is still a barrier to entry and it's still not as it's not a free uh, free market and then uh, uh, have you read the secret barrister's book I haven't, out of kind of out of principle, because I don't know. Well, you'd have seen what I wrote about him or her on my blog about Tommy Robinson. Yes, I think. And I've heard, I've heard that the book's good. I have read the book. I've and heard that it's very good, but it's just I, I just aside aside from a whole bunch of annoying virtue signaling. Virtue signaling. <laughs> you remember my comment? Yeah. There's <laughs> and really annoying virtue signaling. There's some. There's some really interesting insights in there. And there's a chapter in which he or she describes one of these shyster fly-by-night barrister firms who have managed to find a way to monetize crappy legal aid rates, yeah. basically by doing a metric butt-ton of shit work yeah, and yeah, not, giving yeah. the, ever, not giving the slightest crap about the client. But, but is, is that a, a symptom of the clothes shop of very high-priced lawyers? If it was a Let's, free market, would you... Because... Obviously, he's no. exploiting people. Who... He's exploiting people, and what's interesting that for all the virtue signalling is that the uh, the character in question is given a slightly uh, ethnic personality. Okay. Ah. Or you well, can, you can outwoke anyone if you want to. That do, that doesn't surprise um, me. But but the thing is, if this this is the problem, if you put the tax up really high on cigarettes, you'll get counterfeit cigarettes. If you put the price of legal assistance very high you'll get people flying under the radar oh, doing absolutely. crap work. If it was a proper market, which it isn't, then maybe this wouldn't happen. Did the secret barrister say, yeah, we should remove the law society and make this no, a free market? No, of course not. not. No, exactly. Because no. he'll talk about, he or she will talk about how oh, we need to maintain standards. And that means paying my firm £300 an hour. And, and that means that, you know, we'll be billing to it even if we just walk past your case in the morning. And that's the problem. I mean, it's... It's 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 a having having cake and eating it scenario. It's that that 
and I, I think that the interesting thing with the secret paratus book is that there's a lot of insight in there that he or she doesn't realize he he or she is putting forward oh right okay yeah, i that's think I, I i think the the, the 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 free market in law point is is a is a good one that when you read this chapter on this shyster barrister firm like how could that be any worse and within this protected um environment this this stuff happens. In fact, it's someone who is a shyster who has got into the protective environment and is basically acting like a virus inside yeah, there, yeah. Um, and who is uh, who is exploiting the situation, exploiting the protectiveness of it to make money and not acting in the client's interests. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure that uh, the secret barrister's lofty ideals are of of wanting to 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 help defendants in in criminal law are are entirely true entirely justified but there's there's a certain amount of um yeah that kind of not quite joined up thinking that doesn't surprise me i mean well what i read of the secret barrister didn't seem to reflect much joined up thinking but who regulates the legal profession it's the law society. It's, a self, it's this kind of self-regulation. It's self-regulating. Now, self-regulation can work. Quite often doesn't. And I the, mean, what could, could plumbers be allowed to self-regulate? Of course not. Because oh, they wear overalls. They'll, they'll exploit people and they'll take the piss. But lawyers, oh, no, no, no. They're from, you know, high, you know, they're from high society, so they don't need yeah. Another interesting thing, which uh, I, I saw this it's quite some time ago. It's a really interesting kind of holdover from... I don't know if it's a holdover, but it's a good snapshot of the cultural uh, viewpoint in Britain. Mm. When you apply for a passport, you have to get a reference. And there's a list of professions. Yes. Which are acceptable. It's lawyer, teacher, journalist. Journalist? I mean, how the hell is a journalist (laughs) on there? I Every mean, interaction I've had with the journalist has been negative. Exactly. So, but it, it does. It says teacher, lawyer, accountant, engineer. So I've signed one. Oh, because I'm not a professional mate, engineer. Me and my mate, who do similar jobs, we sign for each other. It's great. But but it's, isn't it hilarious that even now in this, in, you know, the, the after, after New Labour, where all class was supposed to disappear, you now have classes of professions which are seen, which are deemed to be. I don't know, you're, you're morally sound enough. I mean, why can't a plumber sign it? Why can't a lorry driver? Are these guys all, are they all jackals? You know, it's, but in, in, it's, it's, in fact, I need to find that form. And I'll, I'll do a it's, blog post on that. Where the, it's, um, it's particularly if you're countersigning for a kid's passport that they're, they're obsessed yeah, with. A, it, a with judge this. is a judge, magistrate, lawyer, teacher, a teacher. And they should be British. But yeah. if they're not British, then, uh, but a then teacher. equivalents. Is, is, is it, is a teacher more, I mean, a teacher? Really? These days? The, ah, yeah. And uh, Anyway, I, I used to sign mine off in my capacity of engineer because it never said professional engineer. Yeah. But anyone could call themselves an engineer. It's not a protected term in the no, UK. No, it isn't. No, it is in France. Yeah, it is very much in France. I think it is in... It is also, apparently in Italy, it is also a, a uh, term of uh, respect to, oh, really? to refer to someone as ingegnere. It's a, it's a way to smile on people. Because apparently in, in, the, in the Soviet Union... It wasn't. And I remember telling people, when I first started traveling in Russia years ago, 
people would meet me and they'd say, what do you do? i say, I'm an engineer. And I, back in the day, I was quite pleased to be an engineer. Yeah. You know, Because, you, know, um, you know, when you're at university, if you're doing engineering, you think everyone else is as thick as shit and a complete waster, because they generally are. Unless know, they did maths. Yeah, or maths or physics. <laughs> I wish what you were like, yeah. if, oh, I couldn't do that. If they did maths or physics, you're yeah, okay, but anyone else is a complete waster. So I was like, yeah, I'm an engineer. And I learned quite a while later that in the Soviet Union, engineer was the crappiest position because you were paid nothing. There was uh, there was a complete surplus of engineers. Yeah. And you normally ended, ended up being sent to some mine in the arse end of nowhere with no salary. So I tell people I was an engineer and they kind of tilt their head in sympathy. Oh. And I couldn't work this out. I'm like, you know, I was, I'm thinking I've got... And they're like, oh, okay, all right, okay. As if I... I don't know if I told them I'm disabled or something. <laughs> and only now, I think now in Russia, you know, being an engineer carries a bit more weight. And it carries a hell of a lot of weight yeah. on my... As I said before, we started recording on my MBA course. Because I'm doing it... I'm an engineer rather than like a marketeer or I studied business or tourism. You Media know, studies. Well, uh, tourism. You studied, oh. I didn't know you could study tourism. But Golf course management. But at the beginning of the course, they said, what do you all do? You know, oh, I graduated last year with a degree in tourism. What did you do? Oh, mechanical engineer, manager, class of 2000, 18 years in the oil business. They're like, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> well, yeah, that's a good question. But yeah, so I, I had this kind of pride. I was an engineer. Well, you can see yeah, now I've got my... Mine's in a box. I'm just, uh, we're just pointing behind the, behind the computer here up on the wall is my University of Manchester Master of Engineering. And the reason I keep that up there, because it was bloody hard to do, it's the degree certificate. It was bloody hard, that course. It was, it was seriously hard. And when I'm, when I'm talking to people about the same topic comes up, and yeah. for our listeners who aren't engineers, they might find this boring. But for whenever I talk to my, most of the people I know are still engineers. So I say to them, you know, I'm, the course I'm on now isn't that difficult. And the one module always comes up. When they say, oh, it's not this, it's always, it's not fluid mechanics. <laughs> yes, yes. And the Louis no. equations, uh, differentiation, integration, the length of a board. Tim has just literally transported me back the thick end, well, 15, it was going to be about 17 years to... Fluid yes. mechanics. Was thermodynamics. I, 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 thermodynamics. Thermodynamics. I was all right with thermodynamics. Fluid mechanics. Fluid mechanics. It was. It, it, it was all about how fluids behave. And and it, you'd walk into a classroom midway through the second semester or something of your second year, and the lecturer would. He was this old guy with grey hair coming out of his ears, and he doesn't really like teaching. He'd rather be in his lab doing research, and he'd say, "Right, today we're going to discuss." He transferred from a fluid, he transferred from a sphere suspended in a moving fluid is governed by the following equation. And suddenly all these Greek letters would appear on the board. But at least you weren't a physicist where you were expected to derive that from first principles. We did a fair bit of deriving from first principles. Because do do you remember the exam questions that every engineer, every engineer can sympathise with this? And again, apologies to my listeners who aren't engineers. I didn't go to Manchester, by the way. Uh, no, but, no, he's, but, but a, he's he's an Oxford boy. So sorry. he did he did he did. In fact, you don't do mechanical. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's, it's general. It's general. Just, isn't a, it? just after just with the core modules, we're I I and IEE um, accredited just before we've even specialised. Yeah, no, I I did mechanical, so that's one of the hardest. And it's in the middle. It's the purest. You can do anything from mechanical, but uh, you'd have an exam question that typically would say 
given this, show that, and then they'd give you a formula. And you had to derive a formula from first principles. And you'd be in the exam, and for 20 minutes, you'd be writing algebra that's going absolutely nowhere. Sometimes it would go nowhere, and then you'd just start from the opposite end and try and work back and see if you could make the meat in the middle and then copy it out in one go. (laughs) Or what you'd often find, you're three pages in... And suddenly you get this formula that looks right and you start cancelling on each side and you end up with two equals one. Yes, that's classic. And then what you do, you write a whole load more and you go, look, I've been at this half an hour, I'm running out of time. And you suddenly go, therefore, and then you write out the final. And then hope that you get the three marks for working. You get the three marks for working, exactly. Oh, so it's crazy. The, these, and the thing is, engineering, I don't think anybody actually understood it. I don't, I'm sure nobody actually understands no, We had some guy. we had some utter geniuses I don't know what they were doing at Oxford they should be at Cambridge if they were genuinely intelligent and is that right bullshit. is that right Cambridge was higher that, than Oxford for engineering that, well we, it was always Oxford Cambridge Imperial but we always like to say or I always like to say that the genuinely intelligent people went to Cambridge and did step papers in school and things and those of us that could bullshit went to Oxford um, well, we had some utter geniuses who were not perturbed at all in the in the, in the textbooks where they said and that formula A, and therefore formula B, and us vaguely normal human beings were looking at it and going like, uh, no, how, what? Um, no, there were some. We, in fact, there was, a, I mentioned her on my blog, is a girl I dated called Wendy, who was in the year below me. And she, she was a working class girl from near Nottingham. And she didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge because she, she I think she went to Cambridge, passed the interview, which didn't like it. So she went to Manchester. And she was in the year below me, and she could work that out from first principles. Oh, she could look at she, she could look at a, a huge integral equation, the length of the board, and and it would be like reading English to her. She could she could do it from first principles. That's um, incredible. The guys that can, the guys and girls that can do that. And the oh, the thing about her, she used to work her ass off. She used to be revising and practicing and practicing. If she didn't bother doing any of that she'd get 80% and get a first. Yeah. She worked her ass off and get 9,500%. She was just, that was the ethic she had. And uh, the worst thing, most of us normal engineering humans, <laughs> maths is just, okay, I've got this. What I've got, I've got a library of standard operations I can do on this algebra. Let's throw some at it. This is, this is monkeys flinging poop at the wall. Seriously. And some of it will stick and then you'll get a good mark. If not, you'll get three marks for having done it, something right. Exactly. So it was all... I don't think anybody actually came to the right answer, but so long as you got halfway through these pages of algebra. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. I'm, I'm kind of... I'm doing... I mean, I've just done two midterm accountancy exams. The first one I got 100% on. The second one I got 100% on. It's just arithmetic, on. isn't it? It's arithmetic. And so long as you understand the principle... Now, I found it fairly interesting purely because it was it was accounting principles which I didn't know anything about and you know it was all right and the, the lecturer was good but people were saying to me afterwards you know they said how the hell did you get 100% I said compared to doing these fluid mechanics 3 exam where you go in you have no idea what the hell they're talking about it's just differentiation and integration it's all in greek for a start oh, non newtonian fluid flow in a pipe <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then you had s- signal processing, which involved matrices and complex numbers. Square root of oh. minus one. What? Uh, uh, hang on. And, uh, and matrices. The, 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 the first and possibly only time I ever found a bit of mathematics actually elegant 
was the the um, complex numbers complex complex number uh, exponential representation of sinusoids. Oof. Sorry, this is getting very very off topic and, and very uh, but very this, crazy. But that. this is but the thing is is why and, and it's it's great because when you work with other engineers around the world and I say this to people, I mean I've worked with hundreds of engineers around the world. The great thing is about engineering is you've all done the same shit We've at university. We've all been in the same you philosophical be, mud. You can be a Venezuelan, a Japanese, a Turkish, and a Brazilian engineer, yeah. and throw a Russian and a Kazakh in at the same time, and then an Australian, and you mention fluid mechanics, oh. and it's all the same. It's You're all like, ah, yeah, you all remember it. So there's this immediate yeah. sort of solidarity. And if you're faced with someone who hasn't done that, we just think they're a complete imbecile. Yeah. <laughs> Unless they person. did physics or maths. Unless they did physical or maths. You talk to mathematicians about this stuff, and they'll, they'll, they'll talk about all this really crazy, complicated stuff that uses maths that goes way beyond anything we'll do in engineering. And they'll, and they'll sort of say, oh, you know, and you take this thing and you do this to it, and you know what that gives you? I mean, like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> it gives you a square with unit length side, so you can just, so you know its area, and then you can just transform it back. And I'm just like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, it's it's impressive. I mean, to be to be honest, the guys that studied maths at a high level at a top university. Oh, they're incredible! They're it's incredible. just it's just no, but the, probably the the math is the most pure of all these subjects, isn't it? I mean, math mathematics is really the one where there's no subjectivity. It's um sorry, objective subjectivity. Yeah. It's 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 right or wrong. I mean, it's yeah. it's it's pure. It's in its pure. That's why they call it pure maths. I mean, it's. There's, there's no, there's, I mean, I don't know if there's any practical application to it. Whereas engineering is, there's always a bit of an art in there, isn't it? And of, we're always going to put a factor of safety on it anyway. Yeah, exactly. So you don't need to be exact. Yeah. Just, okay, how big is that? Okay, do that. In fact, um, a friend of mine, he was, uh, he works, for, he's a rotating equipment engineer. Works for, works for Exxon now. He was at Shell when I knew him in, uh, in Russia. Good mate of mine. And he was the technical authority for Shell. On who's rotating equipment, maybe static equipment. I can't remember. Anyway, I, I need, I needed to do some professional work with him for the first time ever. Normally, he was a drinking buddy, but I thought, okay, he's the okay, this guy, he's the, he's the technical authority. I emailed him, said, look, what, uh, what grade of steel should I use for these bolts? I got the reply. Well, I've done a bit of googling. Oh. <laughs> authorities are doing I said I could have done that but that's what he did he said look I couldn't find anything in our procedures and so I did a bit of googling and I reckon you should use this and that's engineering it's engineering my engineering course taught me get the job done yes. I don't give a shit what you understand what obstacles in your way you will by any means necessary you will get it done we had in exams um, a particular textbook which was for standard formulae and it was full of steam tables and stuff. It was standard formulae, steam standard data. Tables. Oh yeah, we did a lot. Of, we had a lot of guys. We did steam tables. I did just. I haven't heard that term in twenty years. Me neither. It was something I was actually good at. The ranking cycle. Good. Yes, steam tables. Um, and it was it was this sort of three quarters of an inch thick book of tables and data, and it was brilliant. And the justification behind this is that there's no value add in you guys memor- memorizing standard formulae for. Uh, stresses in a 
in the root of a cantilevered beam. Yeah, you, you need to apply no the need, knowledge. There's no need yeah. to know it because in any practical situation, you're eight, you're going to have this book. Howardson, Lunn and Todd, it was with the right. authors. And it was always referred to as Howardson, Lunn and Todd. Um, some of which were, in fact, Oxford professors. Um, and it was brilliant. So there was no... There, there was no sitting down trying to memorise all these goddamn maximum no, which, which is what, which is like what, that. which is what medics have to do. Medics have to rote learn from books, learn but everything. But the, but the, the engineers. I mean, to be fair, fair to Manchester, it was very. I heard that Umist. I mean, they're merged now. Manchester and Umist are merged. But I heard Umist was far more theoretical. Manchester was it was applied, and yeah. when certainly when I compare myself to French engineers, where it was all mathematical theoretical. My interaction with German engineers is that, that they always want to do everything from first principles. They won't. They, they, they. I, I was on a course, on a professional course, um, and we're going through this legal reasoning, um, and we're all engineers or scientists, and it was to to prepare for an exam, um, and the the task of the exam was well defined. You had to do something. So if you start from that, the only way to do something was obvious. But this German guy was like. I would not do this. Uh, why not? You, you're expected to do this. But I would not do this because from first principles, you would not do this. But it's like, you, you, yeah. you, you, we're not working from first principles. We're trying to pass an exam. But I would not do this. He passed yeah. the exam in the end, but it's like, why, why ever complicate your life? I but mean, to be, to be, I, was quite, I was quite glad that my course did a lot of project management and how to apply this stuff. Yeah. The industrial placement helped with that. Because yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you're you're exactly right. Um, although your mentioning of steam tables, honestly, I haven't heard that term since probably 1998. And if you hadn't mentioned that, I'd have never remembered it. Steam tables. These I can't remember what they are. It's basically I mean, it shows how steam behaves under pressure at temperatures it's, or it's, something. Um, and there's curves, and there's all these curves. Various properties of steam. Of steam. Steam under tables. Conditions. I had to use them. I used to know how to interpret steam tables. Um, in fact, I'm going to go into my course next week, <laughs> and I'm going to say, "Has anybody got any idea what steam tables no, are?" No, all have. They, that, that, that's like asking them if they know Martian. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's great. It's, it's a lot. A lot of like physics is entirely theoretical, and steam tables is something that you cannot derive theoretically. No, you have, to, you, you have to. You have to measure. Y- yeah, they, it's all. Um, it's all empirical. It's all empirical. Exactly. They've 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 worked this out from heating steam in boilers and measuring and it. measuring it, and, yeah. and then the bits that they, of that they can't measure, like entropy, which is just like that's right. Yeah. Uh, um, it's just like um, okay, we've got everything else we need in the equation, so we can just back calculate what this is. We don't really know what it is. It's, it's disorder. It's a level of disorder. Can you draw this? No. no. Yeah, entropy. I remember doing that in chemistry. But no, it, it's definitely something that kind of you have a shared suffering with engineers. Yeah. And even and that was actually something in for all my, the faults of the various employees uh, employers I've had before, particularly my last one. There was a certain level. The fact we were all engineers and we yeah. all had some. We'd all gone through this mill. I suppose it's similar to how guys in the military must feel when they've all done a certain test and they're all in the same unit. I've heard that, you know, guys who meet Royal Marines who are complete dicks, the fact is they've still done the Royal Marine course. They've still got a green lid on. So, you know, you've got to give them that. And engineering is a little bit similar in that, well, it would you know. be mentally cold, wet, and miserable, even if we've not been physically cold, wet, and miserable. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, 
Yeah. So what do you reckon? We've gone, we've gone over oh, we've two gone hours now. This is, this is crazy. If anyone has survived this far, jolly good show. I'm terribly sorry. So um, the yeah. end story is that this, this, this company still exists. It's under new management. Uh, in Switzerland, it's on a rather reduced staff. Uh, a lot of the clients followed me. I had a, I had a uh, non, uh, non-solicitation clause, but as soon as I'd gone, they were like, where's Mike? So, <laughs> so that was, uh, that was uh, easy. Um, well, thanks a lot for this, and, and thanks thank for making the effort to come over. I think we'll probably go out and get something to eat, and probably have a few bit more to drink this evening. And yeah, for anybody who's survived this, look, I hope it was interesting. This is the first time I've had a guest on, and we didn't structure it, we didn't plan it, we decided we'd just have a chat and ramble, and hopefully it's been informative and entertaining, and uh, yeah, um, yeah, thanks a lot. So, yep, catch Support you next time. team on Patreon. Yeah, and by the way, thanks everyone. I put my Patreon thing up and about five of you signed up, one of which was my dad. So, come on. This is this is I've I've got to ply my guests with expensive alcohol here. So, this is a, this is a this isn't a cheap endeavor. So, come on. Get on my Patreon page and cough up. And uh thanks for listening. I'll see you on the blog. Cheers. Bye.